After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Hey guys, it's Brody Henderson. You probably know me from kicking Steve's butt on Meat Eater's trivia show. When I'm not doing that, I'm part of the Meat Eater publishing team, and I'm stoked to announce that our new book, Catch a Crayfish, Count the Stars, Fun Project Skills and Adventures for Outdoor Kids, is coming out June 13th. It's Meat Eater's first book for kids, and it's chock full of activities and adventures that will help build serious outdoor skills. Start them young by teaching them how to build a wildlife viewing blind, gig a bullfrog, and navigate through the wilderness. They'll also learn how to forage and grow their own food, build emergency shelters, hunt for fossils, gut fish, track animals, and much more. To celebrate the release of the book, Steve will be heading out on a little book tour from June 16th to June 25th, and he'll be signing copies of the books at Shield stores in Billings, Montana, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City, Missouri, Dallas, Texas, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Johnstown, Colorado, and Sandy, Utah. Catch a Crayfish, Count the Stars is a must-have book for any parent or caregiver who wants to get their kids off the couch and off their screens over those long summer days. It also includes activities for all different kinds of weather that'll keep them busy throughout the year. Visit TheMeatEater.com for tickets, and we'll see you at Shields. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, boy, the Tanzanians are here. When, when you guys, that's what I was telling my kids when you guys came over for dinner. I said, the Tanzanians are coming tonight. They didn't know <laughs> what that meant. And then, uh, but you're Australian. Originally. And you were born not in Tanzania. Nope. I was really misleading my kids. A little bit nearer than Morgan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a little closer than me. Uh, t- okay, Morgan, so w- walk me through how you became to, came to be a Tanzanian. Yes. In Montana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's kind of a long story. And I guess um, if Roger's the sort of the pedigree, the uh, the kind of thoroughbred, I'm like the, the mongrel. Uh-huh. So I, um, you know, African hunting was something that I grew up with. My, uh, my grandfather was an African hunter, not a professional, uh, you know, as a client. He'd go over there um, in the 60s and 70s. He did a number of safaris and 
I always, I was passionate about hunting and I got that from him. And our, the, the farmhouse where we kind of lived had a lot of um, his trophies, a lot of his pictures, a lot of stuff, kind of memorabilia from Africa. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of always like under my skin, I guess. Um, and I think like a lot of people, I sort of hit this period in my early 20s where I was like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, odd jobs here and there aren't cutting it. Didn't go to college. And um, I kind of thought about, you know, taking hunting as a profession further. And I went up to this place in uh, Northern Australia, met a guy that was um, hunting water buffalo up there. There's these free range Asian water buffalo in oh, Northern yeah. Australia, like yeah. thousands of them. They, they had this colony that they tried to establish up there and they realized they couldn't use British breeds of cattle. So they brought these water buffalo as like beasts of burden and meat animals. And the colony ended up failing and they just kind of opened the corrals and were like, off, you know, get out of here. Came back like, I think it was 70 years later and there was like 20,000 of the things. I got a few friends that, that from here that have gone there to do that. Yeah, it's, it's well, awesome. Oh yeah, no, I just have a have always had a high fascination with, with those water water buffalo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, maybe it's the like crocodile Dundee, which is probably like a horrible (laughs) reference for you, but it's a hot, it's a tough one. They don't don't put those in crocodile Dundee. No, there's that that scene where he does the, yeah, he does the, you remember that? I forgot about that. Yeah. That, that bull that was in that movie is super famous. It's like mounted in a bar down there. It's actually, it was a, like a eunuch. Like, I don't know what the right term is. Like that, that specific animal. A eunuch? He'd be a steer. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess, or a, a bullock. Is that the other? T- well, it was what? born with no, no, no. Or, it was castrated, yeah. okay. and that's why it has those massive horns. Like, oh no, yeah. no, no, a castrated, no, a castrated yes. uh, ox is a castrated. Yeah, an ox. There yeah. you go. It's an, an ox, adult yeah. castrated. Yeah, like exactly. a castrated, an, uh, an adult castrated bull. Yep, is an ox. Is an ox. Yeah, it was an ox. Hence the enormous kind of spread on those on those horns. But <laughs> yeah, they're a fascinating uh, species, and they're um, they're they're pretty different from African buffalo. But really, I mean. It's an incredible area of wilderness where you go hunt them. It's they're impressive for sure. Um, so I went up there. I kind of got got hired for that to really see. And I guess for me, it was about seeing if I could, you know, be a guide. Um, and and I think I did all right despite my sort of youth and inexperience. Um, and then this guy came out to make a movie about all the species of buffalo you can still hunt in the world. How'd that movie do? Ah, uh, I think it did okay. It was what was a, it called? It, it's well, it was called Buffalo Hunters, but it was it was a German production, and I think the Germans have a different different vibe around there. There was a lot of like recreates, and I'm a terrible actor. Let me just yeah. give you the like <laughs> just heads up right now. I don't hold that against you. Oh man! And so like I had a tough one with the recreates. They sort of always have that look where like. If someone films you hunting, it looks like whatever, looks normal. Maybe you're a little goofy, but generally you look natural. Yep. But then if someone's like, all right, walk back there and do that again, you always look like an idiot, I think. I yeah, mean, I'll give people if, a little heads up for people at home. If you're watching hunting shows and you're looking for the recreates, uh, if someone goes to shoot something and you realize you're getting three or four camera angles on it, it's not happening. Yeah. Live. <laughs> it's not happening live. <laughs> like, oh, there's a camera guy in front of him, yeah, off yeah. to the side of him, Seems behind dangerous. him. <laughs> there was there was a lot of That's that. That's a recreate. Um, there was a lot of that, but it was cool. But the guy that made the movie um, was a, a phenomenal hunter called Reiner Yosh, um, and his day job was a professional hunter in Tanzania. So after oh. we got done with the movie, I followed him back to Africa, and, and he, was this he told uh, me? But was this one, Roger? Was this one of you guys? So he, he used to work with us from time Worked to time with you. Okay. Yeah. 
People are going to get, people are going to get, well, this will all start making more sense to you people at home. Yeah, it'll, we'll, we'll fill in the narrative here. Um, but I, uh, and so I sort of came to, uh, I came to Robin Hood Safaris a little later on in my career. How old? Uh, well, I guess I was mm, yeah, 30, 33, 34, something like that. And I've been doing this for 13 years now. So Did they have you just carrying water at first and whatnot? Um, Did you get to jump right in? You know, it was a lot of following and kind of, um, you know, Reiner's one of these guys. I mean, I'm kind of interested in your take on this because he was one of the guys that I My take on it. Yeah, well, your take on like what a genius hunter, like if there's like a genius hunter, if there's a level of- there are. I think so too. And like the way I, well, the way I define it, I think it's the same. I read an article about a math genius one time and he was describing it as like, yeah, he has to work hard and that's the ideal. But really generally like math is just super easy for him yeah. and like makes it look easy. And, and this guy, Reiner Yosh, to me was like that kind of hunter where he just, he made what everyone else had to really work at just look easy when he was doing it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had, had the opportunity to learn from him, which was a big deal. Um, and then a couple of years later, I got my license, kind of went out on my own for a bit. You did? Worked for some other people. Yeah. There was, at that time, there was a reshuffling of hunting areas in Tanzania and, and kind of Reiner found himself sort of, you know, I guess caught, caught out in the, in the open, not sure where he was going to go next. Cause his, the, the outfit he was working with kind of lost their area. So I, that sort of put me in, in limbo as well. So I ended up kind of doing um, doing a season in the saloon kind of with my own clients that was, was really interesting. And it kind of happened early in my career. And I learned a lot from that. It was kind of just being on my own, not having anyone to really follow around anymore. I learned a lot by, by making mistakes, to be honest. Oh, wow. Kind of, kind of yeah. screwing up and it's the best way to learn. Yeah, it is. Hand. It is. I'm sure there's some <laughs> former clients of mine out there who might disagree with that notion. <laughs> <laughs> came a long way. But yeah, yeah I, I like to think I um I came out of it, you know, better better at what I do. Um, but it was it was tough. It was interesting. So how did how did you guys come to be colleagues then? Well, interestingly enough, Roger's older brother um and I were kind of I always I sort of I mean the name Robin Hurt. If you're interested in African hunting and particularly the East African tradition, you're going to know that name because Roger's dad is probably the most famous living African professional hunter now, um, a guy who's literally had a license for 60 years um, mm. and, and came up in the golden age, really, the kind of the second golden age, I like to call it, kind of the resurgence of of African hunting after the second was world Teddy war. Roosevelt the first golden age Roosevelt was the first golden age in my view well you could and argue Hemingway was the second golden age yeah you could kind of argue that like the the guys that kind of really explored Africa in the kind of black powder era were sort of I mean what they saw even would, Livingston and those yeah sort of days those guys like Dr. Livingston I presume yeah. exactly that <laughs> whole vibe so th- those guys really explored a totally untamed continent but and Roger and I always have this kind of back and forward dialogue about if when we could go back time. in time, like yeah. when what era. And I always say that era, and Roger's like, "Oh, you would have died of malaria. Yeah. Forget it. Like you, you would have died of some tropical disease I, five I minutes think, into your trip." I think my dad basically started in in the prime of African hunting, basically where it wasn't dangerous, but it was still well dangerous from a medical point of view. You weren't going to die of yellow fever or you know all the other diseases, but. The hunting was just phenomenal. The wilderness was pristine. I mean, it was what it was years the dream. was that? That was sixty years back. So yeah, I'd say the 
the 50s, 60s. Or, Hemingway yeah, era. Yeah. Second golden age. Did Hemingway ever hunt with your uh, dad's outfit? No. He didn't? I didn't think so. No. He had <laughs> so, his one guy. He had Philip Percival, who was actually on the Roosevelt Safari as a young man. Oh, wow. And was on Hemingway's, guided Hemingway as an old man. Which is fascinating. Yeah. So, like guys like Percival, kind of bridged the two. Took a took some time out to go fight the First World War. You know, maybe some of them were, some of them were involved in the Second World War too, and then kind of like came back into the. Hold second on, the same nation. dude. There's a there's a dude that guided Teddy Roosevelt on his big. Yep, like, like on crazy, as his a big junior. crazy museum collection, like 1910, safari. and yep. then turned around and also hunted with Hemingway. Yep, Philip Percival. I wonder who he liked better. <laughs> I bet you like TR better, man. I think TR probably, I think TR, both of them were macho men, right? Mm-hmm. In my, I like, I guess in my reading of, of them both, they were kind of like sort of tough guys. But yeah. to have been part of that Roosevelt Safari just would have been an experience oh, of a lifetime. I mean, the people involved, they had like a hundred porters. I mean, it was Oh yeah, it was not it a was small imprint. Yeah. No, no, no. And the places <laughs> they went, I mean, yeah. they, they went all over East Africa. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. He would have had stories for a lifetime off that one safari. Oh yeah. yeah. A small tangent, have you ever read uh, West with the Night? Yeah, Beryl Markham's book. Beryl Markham, yeah, holy cats, that's a great one. Yeah, Love that's it. a good one. Love yeah, yeah so Beryl to... was hardcore. Yeah. yeah. And that female, Right, female, yeah, yeah, uh, pilot and yeah. spotting uh, big tusked elephants out there, and I just don't hear that book reference very often. So What's it called? West, West with, with the, the night. night. No, don't know. It's a great yeah. one. So great her, one. Roger, her Crim great and I were grandson oh, used, to, used to work with our company. Yeah, used to be our sort of main marketing man. So. <laughs> Who was? That's awesome. Beryl Markham's great grandson. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, God, man, a lot of it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, in Kenya, everyone's sort of connected. It's. Uh, <laughs> the other day, Corinne and I were talking about when I was telling her originally about you after we met, after you guys came for dinner, I was yeah. telling Corinne about you and we got the, and I used the word convalescing. Yes. And we were talking about how <laughs> no one uses the word convalescing. No one uses that word. I said, he's one. like convalescing. It's a great word. He's convalescing <laughs> in the U.S. after getting the snot kicked out of him by a Kate Buffalo. Yeah, I guess that's. <laughs> Have that's you been telling people it. you were convalescing? <laughs> no, I've not used that exact word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we got to touch on a couple of things and then uh, we're going to come back and I want to, we're going to talk about, I want you to tell the story of getting whooped by a. Kate Buffalo. Yeah, the impact of that. Who's still alive? He's still alive. He's still out there. He's out yeah. there. You can go try to find him, though. Oh, I'm definitely going to go try to look him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that story because it's a good story. And, and you'll, you can explain how when you see him, you'll know. Yeah. You'll, you'll, rec- <laughs> you'll recognize him when no, you I'll see him. I'll definitely know. He's ingrained in my in my head. He's got your, uh, <laughs> your shorts on his head? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, so here's here's the thing that happened that we covered um we covered a guy he's something of a repeat offender i believe who was up in jackson hole down in jackson hole wyoming shed hunting prior to shed season and he got busted by a wyoming fishing game um he, he had been going out and uh like pre-hunting wasn't that right mm-hmm. yeah out of out of season. He was pre-hunting yeah, and making little stash piles. Oh. And then he'd make a little cash. And then when season opened, you could just go in and pick up your cash. But he was also in the field hacking chew toys. 
So he was cutting his he was cutting elk antlers into chew toys out in the field, probably for easier transport. Because you imagine, you imagine like you take a big ass backpack. I mean, once you whack them up, dude, you could have. Well, just think, like, think how, how many, many antlers, antlers you yep. carry. This this is like an old guide joke, but it is uh, repeated in many circles. You know if. You want me to make that load easier on you? We just cut those antlers off. Right? <laughs> it's like you just lop off a couple of these points, and it'll pack a lot easier. So, this, this someone wrote in. They're like, "Hey, I wanted to let you know about what happened with the antlers that were confiscated." Wyoming Fish and Game went out and just put and went out and strewed them. Is that a word? Strewed. I know you can strew Strewn. something. Things something can be strewn around. Strewn. Yeah. I think that's a past strew tense. Strew. To strew, he strew. Mm. Let's say that I'm going to go out and right. strew around. You didn't say that. Nope. Yeah. Mm. Yesterday I went out and strewed around some. They littered the mountain. Broadcast. <laughs> or no, it's, Broadcast. But it's <laughs> a good one. So like the mountain, the hillside was strewn with. Yeah. But that, but, there's right, that part of speech. Yeah. Mm. I'm just going to go. Strewed sounds like a soup, like <laughs> a kind of soup you might make. I made some strewed last night. They went out and strewed around all the antlers back out into the woods. They redistributed them in the mountains so that people could have the joy of finding them. But a guy sends a picture in and they were out on opening day picking them up. And they were at, and he in his little grip and grin of him and all the stuff he picked up that day, he has... The chunks. They just flicked the chunks around. They chewed the chew toys as well. Yeah. Oh. So when opening day came, you could wander around and you could find... A it's like they did like an Easter egg hunt. Like an Easter egg hunt with antlers. It's impressive. I'm I don't still know what the hell else you do with it. It's a great though. idea, but it's like... Uh, the, the, it, here's part of the problem. It's the same way that I wouldn't want to shoot a deer with a collar on it. Because it would be that it had been touched. It had been soiled by man. Mm. Though people don't hold that perspective as every time we talk about this, we talk about how that perspective does is not extend to ducks because getting a banded duck is sweet. Mm. Getting a banded duck is great. Getting a deer with a collar on it is not great. Nice. <laughs> I can't explain why. <laughs> you just have to trust me. So to go out shed hunting and pick up um, chew toys... I would feel like there was, I would feel not, it'd just be not as exciting. Like if me, you weren't intending if, to make a chew toy with your shed, ultimately you'd feel a little bit, a well, little bit gypped. Yeah. It'd be that it got picked up, it got cut up, it got confiscated, it got put back out. It would just feel like it wasn't like, um, like, like for instance, if you f- are out hunting morels, it's, it's 60%, it's 40% that morels are good to eat and 60% that's fun to find morels. Yeah. Right. So if you went out and found like some morels that were just cut and set out in a little box, <laughs> you it's a hollow it'd like victory. Different. It'd be like it'd just be different. Yeah, hollow victory for sure. Yeah, it'd be At like least some guys like yeah, I found these, <laughs> but I put them back out in a box, and then you find them. You wouldn't feel like you found a morel. Yeah, no, I can see that. It'd be that you. I don't know. It'd just be different. But yeah. could you conceive of it as like a separate thing? Like there's the sheds that m- you might find, and then there's oh, I got some. Free chew toys for my dog that I don't have to buy the pet store. Yeah, and if you're picking commercially, if you're picking commercially, there's still just that. I'm just like, I I don't, I I, I would pick them up. I'm all for it. I think it was a great idea. It was better than putting them in a, 
It was better than Throwing putting them, them in a in a fishing game auction. Yeah, you know, garage somewhere, mm-hmm. like like whatever. Like better than all that. Just just uh, struck me as peculiar. Oh, you know what's? Uh, let me point this but, out. Too. So did you guys cover the the fine? And then the failure to pay the first fine. No, this this guy's deep into it. Yeah, he, I, I mean he tell me his first round. He's a Bos Angeles cat too. That's where his yep. business is based. Yep. Um, oh. But so he was ordered to pay a ten thousand dollar fine the first time around, um, and never paid it. So that's why they they tacked on I think ninety days a house arrest plus. An additional fifteen k in in fines, I think, is what it came down to. So, wow. pretty 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 steep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love the fact they strewn about those antlers out there. He'd have to say, "I can pay my fine if I can go get my antlers." <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you guys want? Do you want the money or not? Because that's that's where all my assets are tied up right now. So my yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly liquid. I got a liquidity issue. <laughs> I'm still wrapping my head around the shed hunting thing, to be honest. Oh, yeah, I'm man. Still it's going crazy. Just how into, into it people are. Well, you know why you don't understand it? Because in Africa, you guys don't have any servants. Nothing sheds. Nothing sheds. Mm-hmm. Nothing sheds. It's a good point. Um, it's quite fun when you find you know, a... A dead skull. Of, oh, deadheads? Those yeah, are dead cool. Yeah. Those are awesome. Oh, there's a name for that too, is there? Okay. Deadhead. Yeah, well, yeah, I like deadheads. Well, I mean, it's just whatever. What do you call it? Dead skull? Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, as in just when like you find old, a whole skull. Yeah, like an old skull Which, laying yeah. there would be another way of putting it. I yeah. mean, occasionally, like when you find a, a 65-inch kudu that's been killed by a lion and it's just such an impressive head. Oh, yeah. and Do you keep that kind of stuff? Well, we put them in the camp. We're not allowed to take them home or whatever, but we keep them within the area. And cool. You definitely pick it up, so it, so it you, lasts. Redi- you, dis- you redistribute them over to your camp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that should They're be beautiful. our next T-shirt, Steve, is Deadhead. But, you know, obviously a play on the Grateful Dead, you know, three little dancing <laughs> bears. Oh, oh, that's a good one. How did we never think of that? Well, I, I, I threw, I threw now, that out. Listen, I threw that out as a shithead. I'm not going to talk to any <laughs> lawyers genius, and I'm not going to Instagram search The last anything. genius idea we had, we made the stupid mistake of checking if anyone had it, but everyone's had everything. Yeah. 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 Don't look on the internet. The you realize yeah. all your ideas have already been taken. I brought up the shed head idea with those bears when Dedamonte was on, the shed crazy guy. Did you? Did I zone out? No, no, no one remembers did. a thing that happens in this room anymore. <laughs> no, no, I remember everything that happens. No. But I am Listen, amazed that there's that. There is zero servants. Yeah. God, that's... Yeah, north, north of the Sahara, shot. there's one. Um, no, there's not. What is it? Uh, Barbary, um, Barbary stag. sheep. No, Barbary, they have a red stag. Oh, really? Mm, mm. They've what? Got an, yeah. Where? North Africa. From there? Yeah, I'm going to say that it, there was, you know, some kind of land bridge with Europe at some point. Um, Take that up, Callahan. Yeah. I believe that for a second. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's look into it. Barbary, Barbary stag. stag. Mm. Uh, on a recent episode, I went on, a, I was real fired up about Gordon Lightfoot's death. A guy sent us this great picture taken in July 1961. Native to North Africa, Steve. Huh? There we go. I meant the other part. (laughs) (laughs) Algeria to Tunisia and Morocco. That's where my, that's where my ancestors are from. 2% of them. Um, That's why you have that big flag and tattoo and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So I went on a big rip about uh, Gordon Lightfoot and the wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald. And this dude sent this great picture in 
taken in July 1961. His grandpa was on a car ferry in Duluth, Minnesota, and he's got like his station wagon on a car ferry. And in the background, uh, there's the Edmund Fitzgerald floating by. And he later wrote, on, and this guy carries this, the guy that wrote in carries this photo in his wallet. He later wrote, um, built June 8, 1958, or christened June 8, 1958, sunk November 10, 75, brought up Gordon Lightfoot, sink of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and then has the specs of the ship written on it. Just like caught, like the Edmund Fitz photo bombed his grandpa's picture. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. Another, you know, also the guys from, uh, the guys from Old Town wrote in, and um, I didn't know this Gord tune. Gord's got a tune called The Yellow Canoe. Sounds if like you're the dead, do you submarine. have a tune or did you have a tune? That's another. We should have a staff linguist. I don't know. I feel like that's an <laughs> in perpetuity thing. You have. Jordan Sawyer just got his PhD in English, so we should probably. Oh, yeah. Randall, do you know that you're not the only PhD around here anymore? Yeah, I'm thrilled by that. I'm thrilled by that. (laughs) You guys know Dr. Randall. Dr. Randall. Big deal. I presume. Not really a big (laughs) deal. Dr. Randall, I presume. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, the hell's I talking about? Gordon Lightfoot. The Yellow Canoe. Oh, so Gord had a canoe. He, He wrote a song called The Yellow Canoe. Must not be that great. I never heard it. Either way, this yellow canoe winds up in a museum in Canada and had a serial number on it. And Old Town was like, hey, what's the serial number on Gord's canoe? Because Gord's canoe was an Old Town canoe. And they were to pull up, like, I don't know what the hell date it was made. And, huh. and they and, and uh, they used to keep, they sent a photo. They used to have this, like, what, this, like obviously pre-digital, right? They have this giant wall full of cedar boxes and each cedar box is sort of like the purchase registration for every canoe. And it's this huge wall. It's like an English gun maker. If you yeah. go to an English yeah. gun maker, oh. they have the same thing. Yeah. Big, huge ledger books with yep. every, one, every order, every mm. repair. All, yeah, all stored in these cute little boxes. So when they found out Gord's canoe number, they could go down to these cute little boxes, pull up the... the See the original specs. When yeah. It, yeah, interesting. That that shipwreck song, I think everyone I know from the Midwest kind of gets a little misty eyed when that one comes on. Oh, yeah, it's a course, big deal man. for you guys. You got in Australia, you guys didn't tear up about that. No, I didn't have the same uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't have the same same pull to it. I mean, it's a good song. I think we could appreciate it objectively, but uh, we yeah, have everyone. We I have Roger Whittaker in in Kenya. That was <laughs> here's a here's another. Uh, not interested. In no. Oh, no, no. Sorry. What was that? <laughs> you have Roger Whittaker. Say it again. Roger Whittaker. Oh, no. I, th- I didn't catch what you said. I'm yeah. sorry. Go no, I was saying in Africa, he was, he was the one that made you misty-eyed. And, yeah. Oh, who was the that? songs were all... He was a singer. And, but in, what was his... Did he have like a, a I, shipwreck I song? Dreamed of Africa and lots oh. of songs like that. It was all about Africa. So okay. That's why yeah, that but, was but, one. but he didn't document uh, <laughs> shipwrecks. No, no, and, like, he, he didn't like he didn't document a tragedy or something. No, no, no. just you know, he was sort of was like uh, he was. Uh, if you lived in Africa, you know, all the songs had sort of meaning. And was I, I was literally geared up for like a wreck on um, uh, Lake Lake Victoria. Yeah, the uh, African yeah. Queen or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
which I'm sure there have been. Yeah. Phil, you should think. throw in a chunk. Say the gentleman's name again. Roger Whitaker. Whitaker, yeah. What language did he work in? English. Oh, throw in a chunk, Phil. Yeah, I will. You want a little <laughs> more feedback, Phil? Give it to me. Um, <laughs> when you put in that chunk of the Edmund Fitz, I didn't think it sounded, the sound quality didn't sound great to me. That's because I was playing it over my cell phone into a microphone in the room because you just told me Remember to play some on the live. fly. I didn't yeah. have my... I pictured you coming back in later on and really getting her in there. Um, I'll do that next time. <laughs> I apologize. So with this feller, let's get him in nice and clean, Phil. We'll do. <laughs> yeah, don't blow it with this one. Yeah, no. And mine is Kenya, so warm and wild and free. You'll always stay with me here in my heart. My land is Kenya. Uh, we've been covering the kangaroo leather debacle heavily oh you'll appreciate this oh i'm sure from australia i haven't uh, i'm not across this one well people in america are getting real riled up about uh they don't want no one to be using no kangaroo leather for nothing you could say uh, they're hopping mad <laughs> <laughs> all fired up even uh spash pice what the hell's her name <laughs> posh spice what was her name so close oh really victoria beckham posh yeah. spice yes even she is, like, is that the I'm, same person? Yeah. No yeah. shit. Yeah. Well, you know what yeah. else she is? She also is a famous soccer player's uh, wifey. Better half. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Will used to make super fancy denim jeans, and his claim to fame was uh, David Beckham wore his jeans. He should have made them out oh. of kangaroo leather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, D- uh, Bubbly Doug was pointing out that, I think it was Dougie, Pointing out that that sucker must have had 40, 50 pairs of kangaroo sh- leather soccer shoes because it's a real common leather for soccer shoes. Ooh. But I'm going to tell you something now. It's going to curl your hair. Guy says, he writes in and says, I've been listening to the recent podcasts covering discussion about companies moving away from kangaroo leather. I was a firefighter for the city of Houston, the third largest department in the U.S., All of our bunker gloves were kangaroo leather. The gloves were amazing, had great dexterity. Houston Fire Department normally has over 4,000 firefighters on their payroll. Everyone had a set of these gloves. No telling how many were on standby as replacements. If any kind of damage was done to the gloves, we would have to get them replaced so you could go through many pairs throughout the year. My guess is that Houston Fire Department uses kangaroo, still using them, and goes on to say if people in Australia are sweating their market, hopefully the fire departments will keep them alive. There we go. Have you have you been to Australia? No, nope, never. Because yeah. uh, I did my my gap year sort of after university before I became a professional hunter, and kangaroos and wallabies are like rabbits. They are everywhere. I mean, I ended up taking out five with my ute. As I came around a corner and the farmer next door was doing a cull and about 500 ran across the road in front of me. And before I could slam on the brakes, I'd already hit five of them. What I does mean, that they, have to look like? 500 kangaroos? It was insane. There was like this hedge and they all came diving over the hedge. And me and my friend literally didn't have any time to react. And then the worst, I had to keep reversing over to finish the job. Oh, oh really? Oh, yeah. no. That doesn't you didn't make have you a feel tire iron or something? Oh. No, you know, oh. it was a farm truck and it just didn't have anything in it. And, oh, no. And yeah. a ute's not like an American truck, it's like a, a pretty small truck in comparison. <laughs> wow. Um, well, we, another thing we talked about, I don't want to re talk about it, but the fact that 
they're calling kangaroos no matter what. Yeah. Whether yeah, someone's u- whether someone's using it or not. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. They're they either go they either go into they either go into a ditch or they get used as usable product. Yeah. Big time. You you not buying the leather isn't doing it's not, any, stopping it's not saving any, isn't any having any impact. And everybody I talk to says the the protein, the meat is inexpensive and quite tasty. It's good. It's good. So. It, it's a hard sell for people in Australia. It's like very seldom eaten there. They mostly export oh. it. Mm. Either it goes into pet meat or it's exported. Like you'll occasionally see it in um, in some like some sort of high end restaurant or something. But people or a in general burger. there, <laughs> yeah, people in general there have a, a real issue with eating. eating like, do they think of it like eating a dog in America or eating a rat in America? It's hard to... Better. Um, better than both. You I get it in a restaurant. I think it's not quite <laughs> a rat level of revulsion or dog level of revulsion, but it's like... Well, no, uh, I would just, say it's, it's dog... I would... Okay. From a US sensibility, these are two very different reasons not to yeah. eat something. Like, gotcha. To pet, eat a dog would be like, like you're eating them. children. Right. And a rat is because it's disgusting. And a rat is as yeah. gross. I think it's neither. I think it's because people just don't think it's going to be good. And they're kind of like, oh, you know, they hop around, whatever. I, I, I'm not entirely sure because I never had this issue with it. And I don't think I've ever really tried to unpack it with someone. But I know that, like, it's hugely unpopular and not commercially successful, huh. the meat at all, in Australia itself. A bison um, burger. Like I know they like exported to Russia for a while. Oh, it was relatively popular in Russia. I guess it's relatively popular in Europe. Um, but people have this big issue with it. And of course, they're one of these species that's just benefited so much from agriculture and yeah. like land clearing. So their numbers are just way above what they would have been, you know, back in the day, like pre-settlement. We um, covered a guy. Remember that, remember that hot lunch guy? Which hot lunch guy? There was a guy that had a hot lunch program and he got fired because he had, oh, I remember yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, he was the, buying the news? Yes, 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 yeah. But, oh, really? Yeah, at a school. But then he, yeah. his, school. then he ended up getting his job back in the end. I don't remember. Yeah, they let him go. Something they like found that. out yeah. he'd been buying kangaroo burger for the hot lunch yeah. program. They canned him. But I think he might have got his job back, man. I bet Phil could figure that Is out. There, was he buying it and selling it as beef or was he just sort of not commenting on it? Was buying and selling divulge. it as hamburgers. Yeah, yeah right. just burger. Right. Like, whatever. It's burger. Right. Burger's burger. <laughs> I mean, they're good to eat. There's no doubt about it. Is there a stigma around it? Like, it, like that's a guy who eats kangaroo meat? Uh, like, no, I wouldn't say it's that, that extreme. I think people just sort of like you walk into the butcher shop, the meat counter's there, there's beef, there's lamb, there's pork, there's kangaroo. Everyone would be like, eh, I'm not getting kangaroo. Gotcha. If it's at restaurants though, is it at like high end restaurants? Yeah, it, it will be. See, that's also it's interesting. It's kind of a tourist because, attraction. Oh, I see. Well, I see. And, and I think people are more, there's more of a push towards it from a like sustainability standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, these things, as you said at the point you made, they're getting cold whether you like it or not. We may as well try and incorporate or incorporate some of this protein into our, you know, into our diet because it's good stuff. But I know there was like a burger chain, I want to say, that was like, we're switching to kangaroo burgers. And I think it just killed their business. And <laughs> people just couldn't really? get behind it. People they just, just couldn't a, get behind Roos it. Roos just need a rebrand. That's all. They, they need a rebrand. I agree. I think it's going to be a, um, a tough sell. road to hoe. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's gonna be. <laughs> we should get into business with them, Steve. <laughs> Australian... Uh... How old, I only had kangaroo a couple of times. Someone sent me a bunch of kangaroo chops one time. We ate them up. Oh, interesting. I wonder if they're from like a farm in Texas or something. No, 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 no man. They're from Australia. Really? Yeah. You know, oh, wow. I can't remember how I got them, but it was a long time ago. I got those and then, and then, um, 
the same person sent me some yak meat. Huh. Tibetan yak meat. Wow. I think you do a side-by-side profile picture of would you eat me? And one side's just the kangaroo and the other side's the kangaroo with like a big set of rabbit ears on it. Oh, yeah. Everybody likes eating rabbit. Yep. Also, I have to say like a a wallaby looks a lot more appetizing than a big red kangaroo. Really? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, they just look a bit juicier and just smaller fluffier. and a little more chunky. <laughs> yeah. they, got ju- they got a juicy look to them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not as sort of wiry and, and yeah, spring loaded as the. Yeah, those male yeah. red kangaroos are pretty, pretty mean looking. Things. They are mean looking. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, very they're, stern. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't find anything about the cook getting his job back because it got so bad that the superintendent of the school district even resigned. Like, oh man! So, what? Yeah. I, as I said, people are funny about it. Like Boy, in a they way, are. Yeah. These people wouldn't know a kangaroo if it kicked them. And <laughs> <laughs> here, no, you wouldn't. Yeah, you know what they look yeah, like. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, one last thing. So we, uh, man, it was maybe a year ago. Maybe a year ago, we had a bunch of a uh, bunch of our colleagues from the fir- from First Light on, and they had been on this show, and we had announced um, that our waiters, First Light waiters, would be coming out. This summer. So there's a long, you know, two-year test process. We've had people running around hunting ducks, and I've been trapping beavers in the waders. Um, I don't know, 10 to 14 states or something. We've been testing the waders. And just a heads up that they they gotta be perfect, and we're not we're not ready yet. Um two years, 10 states, they're not ready yet. So I know a lot of people keep reaching out about getting the new First Light Forge waders. Um, I have a pair. They're phenomenal. They're worth the wait. But in terms of getting like the, the numbers out there for launch, we're not there yet. So stay tuned on waders. Which I think is exactly what you want to hear from a company. Yeah, because we could be saying they're not ready, but order now. And by the way, they're expensive. They are ready. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anybody who's had a a rough go with an expensive pair of waders is just, you can't even look at them the same way. Um, So, yeah. We're aiming for the the top of the heap here, the best of the best, and and we're putting the, the screws to them. So stay tuned. It'll happen. Stay tuned. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. All right. Uh, tell, tell everybody the story about getting beat up by a, by a Cape Buffalo. <laughs> well, 
it can be a long story or a short story. I want the long one. The medium. Okay. Oh. The the long version, we were in um, our Luganzo Game Reserve concession, which just to put things in perspective, it's over a million and a half acres of pure wilderness, no other people bar our little camp. and How many acres? Over a million and a half acres. It's, I looked that's it like up. Half, that's like, like what, what, Yellowstone's two million? It's, it'd yeah. be, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's right about in. the size of Rhode Island, basically. Um, Rhode Island's a great state to have yeah. in the country. <laughs> good for these good type of comparisons. It's great always reference. good for making things. <laughs> it's comparisons. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a great little tool yeah. to have Rhode Island. So anyway, we, it's a two-hour flight in from Arusha, which is where our base is. And it was a big family safari, so my brother and another professional hunter were, were on the trip as well. Now, I, I'm going to drive you crazy because I need to have certain things clarified as we go along. Yeah, that's fine. Do you mind right now telling, like, what is a concession? So how it works in Tanzania is um, you lease the areas from the government, which okay. gives you the right, the tourism and hunting rights for that area of land. Um, there's no private ownership in Tanzania, and Southern Africa is very different in that the landowner owns the wildlife and everything. We, we just lease the right to take people there. Okay. And so it's, it's undeveloped. Yeah, it's set aside for wildlife and you know the habitat's protected but there's huge pressures on it so it involves a huge amount of anti-poaching and community sort of liaison work to to get them on side and to look with after the this wildlife. this one million acre chunk how many residents are in that one million acres zero no one just our no residents our hunting camp all around the edge, there are villages where they're farming and they have their land set And aside. Those, those villagers around the edge, they utilize that? They're technically not allowed into the area. They're not supposed area. to hunt in that concession. No, they're not allowed to do anything. They shouldn't be cutting trees, farming, grazing their cattle. It's, it's just set aside. It's a game reserve. So it's when you say shouldn't be, I'm life. assuming that that does go on. So yeah. this is the problem in Africa that, you know, people are desperate to survive and the population is growing so rapidly, there's not enough space for everyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they see this huge piece of land and if they're not benefiting from it in some way, then of course, you know, if they can catch an animal and feed their family, then then they're going to try. And so a a big part of our job is trying to make the communities benefit from us being there. And um, yeah, my, my dad was a sort of instigator in the community benefit scheme where, you know, the local villages would benefit from the game that we hunt. And um, so we've, over the last 15 years, I think we've spent over $3 million on developing schools, boreholes, health dispensaries, you name it, whatever the, the communities needed. And that was all generated through through our community benefits of hunting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so that's a concession. Um, yeah. So you're in that concession. So we're in the in the Laganza Game Reserve. And um, because it's a big family group, some people are arriving earlier or later. And um, I'd been hunting with the mother. And the daughter was just arriving halfway through the trip. And she's 23, her first African hunting experience. And the mother's like, well, why don't you just go out with her on a one-on-one today? And let her just, you know, enjoy the experience and I'll have a, a rest day in camp. And so she arrives and we we set off early in the morning and, you know, I want to get a, her a feel of hunting in Africa. And so we're not going for anything dangerous. We're, 
we're going to go out and look for one of the more common plains game animals, like a, a waterbuck or a topi. And as it happens, we run across some fresh tracks for, for buffalo. And it's just, you know, you, you can't miss the opportunity, you know, when, when something's fresh and good. I was like, well, let's, let's give it a little look and, and we'll see how it all goes. And as it happened, these buffalo took us right up into the mountains, you know, over a plateau, down the other side. And we spent like five or six hours tracking them, by which point she's now beginning to suffer from heat stroke and has like, we hadn't taken any lunch with us. Luckily, we'd had a couple of bottles of water and, um, I had some M&Ms, which I gave her, some chocolate M&Ms, <laughs> which was enough to basically walk back to the nearest point we could get the car. Uh. So basically after six hours, um, we've had no luck. And following a single track? Following, it was a group of four or five buffalo, okay. yeah. yeah. And anyway, the, the wind just kept swirling and working in their favor, and it wasn't going to happen. So I was like, well, we don't want to push it anyway. So we head back to the car, and we have our picnic lunch and a bit of a break, and... I'm like, well, why don't we just go along the edge of the lakeshore this evening? And, you know, if we happen to see a waterbuck or something, then then we'll try, you know, try our luck. But otherwise, we'll just amble back to camp because she'd basically, you know, had enough of, for them from the day. And we're driving along the lakeshore at about 5.30 in the evening. And suddenly this beautiful old bull waterbuck runs across the road in front of us. And I can see straight away it's, you know, it's a perfect old bull. And so I'm like, okay, we need, we need to go and give this guy a go. So she jumps out, gets her gun. I grab my shooting sticks um, because in Africa, you know, the grass is often long. So you use shooting sticks. It's like a tripod. So you shoot from a standing position, not lying down. And um, my tracker's grabbing my, my big 500, which is a sort of the backup weapon. And the zip keeps jamming on on the gun sleeve and so i turned to him and i'm like no, don't worry don't worry we're not going far and we set off and we come around the edge the way it works is sort of floodplain so you've got these ant hills where all the foliage basically is concentrated so the trees Why is that? because during the wet season the whole area floods oh, so but it can it's survive on the anthill. grass plains but it yeah. survives yeah. And these things are big you know yeah. you're talking 20 30 feet across yeah. the anthills so massive. you've got these really? huge open plains oh. and then these these massive anthills that have trees and palm bushes and lots of foliage on them and it's you sort of work with them you know they're perfect for stalking things you come around the edge of the cover and so we go around a couple and there's the water buck and I put the sticks up but the, um, the water buck stops with a palm leaf right in front of its vitals, and she's uncomfortable with the shot. Like those old Adam and Eve pictures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so the water buck carries on, and it goes around a few more of these ant hills, and we're stalking along the other side. So you're just using these ant hills as, like, as a little cover, concealment. Yeah. 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 And like, like using round, round hay bales. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> just like that. And next minute... As we're coming around, we've literally only gone probably 500 meters from, from the car. And I come around this, this one bush and this buffalo bursts out of the front of the bush towards us. And normally, like when you're hunting them, 99% of the time, if they sense you, they, they burst out of the back of the bush and you, and you don't even see them. You just hear the eruption. They're and, going and they're away. Gone. They're yeah. gone away. Yeah. 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 And 
this one time typically it decides it's coming out the front and it looks at me it looks at the young girl that I'm with and it decides it's homing in on her meanwhile the, the trackers have just vaporized they, they disappear <laughs> in, Smart in seconds survival instincts, and, yeah. and normally that actually helps you in the case that they'll it'll draw the animal's attention but um, in this case it didn't it it just fixated on my client and everything sort of slowed down and I could tell you know she was going to get annihilated because she was just standing upright in the open and she'd later told me she didn't actually know it was a a buffalo she thought it was the water buck that we were hunting so she was just confused in the moment yeah and i sort of evaluated everything i saw it was really old and it it didn't have both it had broken both its horns off it was so old so it just had this big mound of a boss in the middle but no nasty hooks just a battering ram yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in my head in that split second i kind of thought well i can throw my shooting sticks at it and That'll draw its attention it I didn't think it would slow it down. I just <laughs> thought it would draw it towards yeah, me. Yeah, I got you. I got you. And then I, then I thought I could be like a bullfighter and, and dive out of the way in, at the last second. And I got that bit a bit wrong. <laughs> it, um, I, I threw my sticks and hit it straight in the face. It How was close probably, was it when you, when you hucked your sticks at it? So it, it burst out of the bush literally about 15 yards in front of us. And it was about eight yards when I chucked my sticks And, and what do they weigh? A buffalo about 1,500 pounds, you know, maybe 1,700 for a big old bull. Like How that. high are they at the shoulder? The shoulder probably, I don't know, sort of five, 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 five and, and a half, half foot. So they're considerably bigger than a, I mean, well, like a big Yukon moose. Bigger. It, not its as body tall, is bigger, but not they as don't have that. I mean, like, I'm, I'm in poundage. Yeah, though, yeah. poundage carrying for freight. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's more of a bull terrier shape than yeah. a... Doberman, if you know what I mean. It's, it's Low short and solid. Like, yeah. yeah, and the, ma the mask goes all the way to the hips, yeah. right? Or all the way like to the ankles. Yeah, I mean, yeah you lose a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it comes at me, and I literally just bend my knees to start the dive, and I realize I, there's no way I'm even going to project like you couldn't even get a, me. You couldn't even get a jump going. No, I didn't even start <laughs> jumping. And I used to play oh a lot of God, rugby. Man. So my instinct was I kind of knew it was going to get me in the ribs. So I dipped my when shoulder. You, when you hooked like, your sticks at it, was it was it still standing or was it already coming? No, no, it was running. It was oh, running. So, was, oh, I see. Yeah. So he was already on he his was, way. He was already, he'd homed in and he was. And how far apart yeah. are you and your client? She's about a meter sort of to one side from you. me. So he yeah. comes out, he's coming hard. Yeah. And you throw, as he's running at you, you fling your stuff at him. Yeah. I he's already got his velocity. And really yeah, yeah. make a great shot too. Yeah, with, I mean, with your I, sticks, I, yeah. I was pretty surprised when I hit it in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine what he could have anyway, done with a rifle. You're like, step yeah. one of the plan? <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it worked. And he came straight at me and, and I dipped my shoulder thinking I'll, I'll just take the impact on my shoulder. And I didn't realize it was going to be like being hit by a freight train, basically. And the the impact threw me about 20 yards, no joke. And Man. I... Um, I took most of it on my shoulder, but it then the secondary impact hit my head and it, I sort of blacked out. So I woke up on the ground and everything was sort of blurry and spinning around and I was trying to stand up, but I couldn't use my one arm. And at the same time, all I could think about was, is, is my client okay? So I'm sort of shouting, are you okay? Trying to 
locate her. And luckily one of my trackers ran back and grabbed me and sort of helped me stand up. And then I saw her and she was absolutely fine and got told the rest of the story was basically after it had flung me 20 yards, it then decided it hadn't had enough and came after me again and was just pounding me on the, on the ground. Oh, while you were blacked out. Yeah. And yeah, so my, my butt was Prison completely black, yeah. I, but I don't and remember any of that. And you were doing it with his hoof or still just doing using No, no, his with head. the boss. They always use their head for everything, yeah. And when, when it did Man. this, my, my client, the young girl, basically realized this was a buffalo, not a water buck. And we'd had the discussion earlier that morning what to do if, you know, if we came across a buffalo in a bad situation. And I'd sort of said, you know, either get behind a bush if there's one nearby or lie flat on the ground. And um, so there was one bush right there and she, she ran the sort of five steps to get behind the bush. And it was enough to attract the buffalo's attention off me onto her. And it, it tried to then get her, smashed the one bush and then ran off never to be seen again well almost never to be seen again it actually ran into our anti-poaching team like who <laughs> was setting up camp for the night and so that caused a bit of mayhem there as well as it ran through well, camp you still and, pissed off yeah yeah and then he was out of there and, and they the anti-poaching team said that they noticed it had a bit of a limp and i, I think it had had a run-in with a lion or possibly a poacher at some point and one of its legs wasn't quite oh, there. You didn't, you didn't claim that? You said, well, I used to play rugby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I gave him a pretty good shot. No, yeah. But it, it did explain slightly why it behaved the way sure. it did yeah. and why it was in a place you normally wouldn't expect to, to find a buffalo. It was, so it caught us off guard. Oh, yeah. so he was also in terrain. So yeah, he was, he was right in a very open area. And normally the buffalo will go to water and then they'll head way off back into the hills and okay. thickets and, and sort of disappear in the heat of the day. And he'd stayed very close to the, to the water's edge. And I think probably because his leg was giving him problems. Yeah. And I presume when we came around the corner, he must have thought we were after him. And he knew, you know, he didn't have a chance to to run away so he stood his ground which yeah wasn't great so what was the uh the damage in in total so that's kind of a funny story so i <laughs> i i thought i dislocated my shoulder like the, the trackers stripped me naked well down to my underwear and because you know you sort of think you don't know with all Absolutely, that adrenaline yep. you're not sure what injuries you've you've sustained and they they realized that basically a I looked fine on the surface, apart from I had this rhino horn sticking out of my out of my shoulder, and I couldn't really figure it. I could still use my arm a little bit, but it was painful and couldn't. And that lift rhino it above my horn head. sticking out of your shoulder was what? It was my collarbone. Okay. Um, but I thought it was just dislocated, and I thought I might be able to pop it all back into place. So by by now it's about six fifteen in the evening, and as I was explaining earlier, it, like it's basically two hours flying back to Arusha and we were about two hours from the airstrip so the whole process was going to take four hours and we only had half an hour of daylight and we had, we're all members of this thing called flying doctors where if you have an incident a plane will fly in with a doctor and you know basically rescue you and take you back to hospital but I kind of knew it was too late to to call them so I thought the best plan just get back to the camp and so I gave her a couple of beers because I knew the shock <laughs> was only going to help for a little while. And I wanted to keep her sort of calm. And I decided to drive back to camp 
as a kind of distraction. And also I thought the more I used my shoulder, the less it would stiffen up. So we drove 45 minutes back to our camp, arrived you know, just after dark and everyone else had just arrived as well. And um, so they straight away sort of, well, my brother lectured me on why didn't I have my rifle, which is literally the number one <laughs> rule is you never leave the car without your rifle. And the one time I broke it, this happened. Do you think and you would have gotten a shot off if you'd had it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had enough time to hit it in the head with a stick, so I I think I could have shot it. Um, But anyway, hindsight is a lovely thing. (laughs) But so anyway, we get back and they they feed me some painkillers and I have a shower and it's now beginning to stiffen up a little bit. So we decide to try and YouTube how to relocate your your shoulder. (laughs) So I'm now lying on the dining room table, lifting my arm above my head. No doubt, so no hoping. doubt watching those ads. Everyone knows Fat Bird's carbs. <laughs> <laughs> Fat Bird's carbs, right? Wrong. And I'm, sort of, do. And I'm hoping it's going to just <laughs> pop back in and nothing happens. So eventually the, the father's like, well, actually, we, we should call my brother-in-law who's in orthopedic surgeon. Oh, that's a handy brother-in-law. Yeah. So He's like, is he on YouTube? <laughs> no, no, luckily, <laughs> luckily we've got Wi-Fi in camp. So we, yeah, we have this sort of satellite Wi-Fi. So we, we FaceTime him and it's, it's like four in the morning in the States. And amazingly he, he answers and he realizes straight away it must be quite serious. And so like, yeah, there's been a bit of an incident, but we really want you just to diagnose this problem. So I, I like showing my injury and I say, look, when I bend down like this, it sticks up like a rhino <laughs> horn. And I thought it was dislocated. And he's like, no, 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 you've, you've separated your AC joint and there's no fixing that. You need surgery. And so we give up on the, the YouTube and at least you didn't, type, you didn't type that into YouTube. Right. No. You're like, <laughs> secondary opinion. Yeah. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, there's, there's three or four grades and you've, you've basically done the worst. So <laughs> there's no hope. And so I go to sleep and we wake up in the morning and I'm pretty stiff. Like, cause also my sternum, everything's been yeah. basically just smashed. And, um, so every time someone makes me laugh, like I'm literally dying with pain. And anyway, I, I wake up and I, I was plan- I was actually leaving the trip in three days anyway. So we're sort of debating whether to call the flying doctors or if I just waited out. And I was flying back to England from Tanzania and I actually thought it's easier to just stay in camp. And there was no blood in my urine because the thing I was more worried about was internal injuries. So, I mean, my wife literally killed me when, when she eventually found out about all this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I made the decision to stay and do the last three days of the trip. Oh, give me a and, <laughs> and yeah, we actually had a pretty successful time. Uh, managed to hunt a Sitatunga and a crocodile. Oh, really? With, with one arm. I sort of figured how to hold on to my shirt so I wouldn't move my arm around because it, was, it basically wasn't too painful as long as I didn't move so it. So did you switch up rifles at that point so you could operate something with one arm? No. Because I, you just got the lecture. Yeah. You can't. Well, so I could... With pain, I could use my rifle. <laughs> I just couldn't lift it above my head. <laughs> I mean, my, my arm, basically. Yeah. I couldn't lift my arm oh. above my head. So I, I did try. I actually went looking for the buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. So you already tried to find him. Yeah, I did try and find him, but it was. Um, I realized I was actually not being very clever, so we didn't look for it for very long. Oh, um, you ever see the life aquatic? No, I haven't. Well, it's these guys that set out to 
What do they want to kill? Tiger shark. Jaguar shark. Jaguar shark kills his partner, and it's a whole movie about him trying to find uh, this this exact jaguar shark and kill it. It's a a comedy, but yeah, Yeah. that's like you. You like so the father put a put a bounty on (laughs) on the buffalo. The father of of the girl that was with me. Oh, really? And he was like, yeah. Any any of your other clients coming through after we leave? He's like, I'll I'll pay the the game fee. Just, you know, we need to <laughs> to exact a little bit of revenge. Wow. <laughs> I followed uh, the tracks for a little bit a month or so later. Couldn't couldn't get on him. So he was still alive? Oh, he was out there, yeah. Well, did he have a bad limp? Uh, it, the trackers said they could see from the tracks that there was something going on with one of his legs, yeah. And they were certain it was him. I mean, they, they, they knew that it was that buffalo for sure. Huh. Um, so we went, we went for it for a little while, but it, it just kind of it wasn't viable. We did he start getting, getting out of, like, his... Uh, his his convalescent zone. He was within a mile. Zones. He was within a mile of where he hit Roger. Um, and he was sort of doing the same thing. He was hanging out by those sort of vegetation islands, but he did once when we followed him, he had gone kind of into the woodland and, and headed towards some thickets um, and some kind of higher country with swirling wind. And yeah, we just couldn't get on him. So I think, yeah. uh, I think he, you know, I think he was sort of reverting back. He was, maybe he was doing a little better. Yeah, maybe well, it lifted his morale. I'm hoping he's still You had your surgery him. in the U.S. In the U.K. Oh, you had your yeah. surgery in the U.K. Yeah. and then came here to chill out. Yeah, so we always come over in January anyway, and you know for the hunting conventions. Oh, I and I kind of figured, yeah, it would be a good time to do something different and have a bit of time out from Africa and brought my family over and yeah, I've been living the Montana dream, which has been incredible. And how, when do you got to go back? Uh, in about five days. Yeah. You'll go back to Tanzania. Yeah. yeah. And do your summer hunting season. Yeah. So it's all about to kick off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want, uh, I want you guys to talk about trackers. You, you talk about trackers a lot. Um, and what I thought was interesting when you, when you, when you guys came for dinner is, uh, you discuss trackers as, like you, um, acquiesce to their judgment definitely yeah. definitely the, in my view the trackers sometimes aren't spoken about with the the kind of reverence that they deserve and mm-hmm. I, I would say for me as someone that wasn't born into a professional hunting family or born on the african continent the the greatest privilege of of doing what i do and and being part of this industry is is working with those trackers and the way I see my job is our industry kind of has this sort of trifecta and, and, you know, there's obviously the the foreign client that makes everything we do possible. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the revenue source. And then there's the trackers and then there's the professional hunter. And I see the role of the professional hunter as kind of the glue that binds those two other halves the, you know, the tracking team and the foreign client and kind of brings that, that unit together to be a successful hunting, hunting team. Um, but what they do and, and the way that they allow us to be able to hunt, you know, it's so funny because, you know, oftentimes professional hunting, you know, has its roots in kind of the early, you know, the guys we talked about before, you know, the sort of Philip Percival's, the FC Salus of the world that kind of opened up a lot of this country. And they were obviously from the European hunting tradition. And a lot of that's carried over. We, you know, we look for 
old bulls. We hunt males of the species exclusively, um, you know, which, you know, the sort of trophy hunting aspect, if you want to call it that, comes from that European tradition. But we hunt in an African way. You know, those, the, the, the tradition that European hunters or American hunters in many cases have come from, and I know there's some tracking in the, in the North woods and that sort of stuff is, you know, either sitting in a stand or, or spot and stalk. Yep. We hunt the African way, which is following animals tracks and, and I can't do it. You know, I've been in this industry for a, a good long while, um, and, and watched what they do with just keen interest, but oftentimes just amazement at how they're able to sort out tracks that have mingled with other animals. You know, you're following a single buffalo and it mingles with a herd for a while, then separates off again. They can sort that out. They can sort keep out- Keep on that one animal. Yeah, yes. keep on that one animal. And it's not just buffalo. They can do it for almost any species. What allows them- uh, How? Why? Phenomenal. So a great tracker is both born and made, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They have exceptional eyesight. I mean, just phenomenal ability to see things um, up close and in the distance. It's their eyesight is it's borderline superhuman, and they have a great tracker. Has a feel for what the animals are going to do, and also for the terrain that they inhabit and how the animals will use that terrain, and and a great tracker. You know, generally speaking, they'll be very familiar with an area that you're hunting in, possibly because they grew up in a similar area or on the periphery of the hunting area. They're oftentimes from those communities that Roger was talking about before. Um, Or, you know, and Rog can sort of expand on this because his dad was kind of the master of this. They were a former poacher that that basically, you know, Robin Hurt Safaris turned straight um, and brought into the fold as a tracker. Um, and those guys, they, you know, they have this intuition about where the animals are going to go, what they're going to do at different times of the day. Um, and you'll get a sense of that, you know, I'm, I'm cognizant of some things that are happening, you know, for example, if you're following a buffalo that's coming from water and you see it starts to sort of cast around back and forward, you know, it's looking for a place to, to lay down and you're, you'll often think, okay, we're, we're potentially getting close here. You know, that buffalo is getting ready to bed, but there's so much more that they can intuit from those tracks and from the, you know, the marks that the, the animal makes on the ground that are just beyond my understanding, it's, beyond it's just, my ability to interpret. It's second nature to them. I mean, the, but, the way but you I, were, but you were brought up in this world. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my childhood was spent basically my, my dad used to hunt 10 months of the year. But the trackers so, are better than you still. Yeah. But the only time I would see him would be to, to go on safari. So my, all my holidays were spent on safari and my favorite part of the day was when the hunters would come back and it was siesta time and the trackers were like some of my best friends and sort of nannies and, we, and we'd go off adventuring in the middle of the day and set traps for guinea fowl and climb baobab trees looking for honey and just learning how to make poison arrows. I mean, these guys just, they, they lived off the ground. And as, as Morgan was saying, a lot of them were converted poachers and yeah, something yeah, yeah, talk about that a little bit something you, told, you, told really, me, you mentioned that to me when we had dinner yeah well what people don't realize is there's there's different forms of poaching in in africa there's the ivory poachers who are obviously very heavily armed totally commercial and nasty and you know zero tolerance and of course you call in the game department if you ever see one 
And then there's commercial meat poachers who often all have a rifle and they're going out just to sell the meat. And then you have what I call like the subsistence poacher, the opportunistic poacher, who's your average farmer who lives nearby and the temptation to try and get something to feed his family. And some of them even, you know, were traditionally hunter-gatherers, you know, by nature. And, you know, the rules of the world have made them into a poacher. Got it. Um, but So an individual might have grew up. Yeah. So hunting these areas and at some point someone said that's not how it goes down anymore yeah, yeah. so i mean we used to live, have a hunting area on the edge of a traditional hunter-gatherer tribes sort of boundary and they were always coming in to try and hunt something with their bow and arrow and you'd sort of feel sorry for them and drive them around threaten that they were potentially gonna go to jail and then my dad would often be like or oh, you could come and work for me and make a living doing what you're doing, um, and it will be legal. And so a lot of the trackers still work for us. They've been with us for like 45 years and were ex-poachers at the time. Uh, and do, do they do they enjoy it, or is it just that that's – or is it oh, that they, just the they, situation they were dealt? They love it. They and, love it. And the main thing is in, in Africa, like meat is literally a very rare commodity and placed very – high on a sort of pedestal. So for these guys, they, they weren't actually interested in the money, but when they realized how much meat they were going to get, and you know, to, in Africa, most people have meat in their diet maybe once in a, in a week. Mm -hmm. you know, one meal in a whole week will have meat in it. So for them to be able to literally gorge themselves on as much meat as they can, dry everything that's left over, take some home for their families at the end of the season, I mean, that, that was why they decided to come and, and work with us, really. Hmm. And, you know, the only way I can explain it is like the tracking, going back to the tracking is like, it's, it's like reading a newspaper for them. Like they, they look around at the ground and they can see everything that's happened that morning, you see. And, you know, they didn't have any interaction with the outside world. So that was their entire focus. So it's a lot of it is born and bred into them in its... Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of it yeah. that can't be taught. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's not a dark art, right? They're seeing something on the ground, but and, and oftentimes we can see it too. We just can't interpret it the way they can. Um, and yeah, they're, they're incredible characters to be around and, and hearing their stories about how they learned how to do what they do is it's fascinating. It's such a privilege and it's so different from how how people hunt in North America or Europe or anything else. It just, you know, it's, it's a, incredible to see. When uh, you talk about that they, they dry a lot of meat, how does that go down? Do, I mean, are there, because that, I mean, that's not a sm small task. No, no it's a so big operation. Everything, basically, when, when you hunt something successfully, they, they skin off, you know, the skin and the head and any trophies that, that the client wants. So and the then, trackers do that work. Yeah, they'll yeah. they'll do the the easier bits, and then it goes back to camp, and the skinner will split the lips and the ears and around the eye, all the sort of more complicated bits, um, back in camp. But they'll do the field preparation as such, and then you know a lot of the animals are too big to to load into the back of a car, so you, you'll chop it up into sizable chunks, and but by the time they're finished, like everything has been loaded into the car with the exception of a big pile of grass, basically, and the lungs. I mean, the stomach lining's taken, 
the intestines, everything has a use and nothing goes to waste. I mean, literally, that's all that's left is a pile of grass. And our camps sort of have like a, a behind the scenes operation that's processing, obviously, you know, when you're on safari as a client, you're eating 100% game. You know, the kitchen in camp is is turning out incredible food made from, you know, the animals that you hunt. But then there's this sort of whole parallel operation kind of behind the scenes of processing all that all that protein um, and, and preserving it through drying and smoking to, to be a product that, yeah, our whole team basically can take back to their communities, to their families, um, and, and just sort of sustain themselves throughout the off season. And it's, it's a huge draw, um, that, that pulls people into our industry because yeah, that, that access to protein is just, it's priceless. It's a big deal. Um, and then we support some of those surrounding communities directly with meat as well. We'll either take fresh meat there if we're in kind of close proximity or that, that dried smoked product will go to, to the surrounding communities as well to, you know, to feed people there. Um, and it's a big deal. What is the, what is the, um, sort of like your trackers are from what cultural group? I don't even know the right lingo. So they come from all sorts of different tribes. I mean, generally what happens is initially you get people from the area. So in Maasai land, most of the trackers are Maasai because they understand the animals that you get there. Like that's the amazing thing with Tanzania is the variety of species that we hunt and, different parts of the country have completely different animals. So like in Maasai land, you have Lesakudu and Gerenuk and the gazelles. And then you go to Western Tanzania where you've got the sable and roan antelope and Sidatunga. So it's, it's very different. And so you need people that have grown up with those animals. I got it. Yeah. So we've got a whole mix of tribes for, you know, each of our camps basically has people from that area. And then, the one area basically um, on the edge of the Serengeti had probably the most amazing trackers, the, the Hudsby people and their sort of offshoots. And they're about the only tribe that really can transfer from one area to another and they're still amazing. Whereas mm-hmm. like so the Maasai, you take a Maasai out of Maasai land and he's, he's got no idea how to track a, another type of animal, but he'll spot a lesser kudu you know, half a mile up a valley just with his bare eyes and you can hardly even see it with your binoculars. It's, Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are ancestral hunter-gatherers, so it's sort of, it's, it's deep, deep in them to be able to sort of go anywhere and hunt anything. But, you know, one could be forgiven for thinking like, well, what is, what is it exactly that the professional hunter does? And it's, it's so funny, you know, I, I've sat with trackers for hours and hours and hours and just talked about you know, different things related to hunting and their perception of hunting and how, and how it varies from mine and so on and so forth. And like the one bridge that I've never been able, or the one gap I've never been able to bridge is like them seeing an animal as a source of meat and understanding like why we want to go for an old bull. Like when we follow something for eight, 10 hours in the hot sun and through thickets, you're crawling through like these buffalo holes in the thickets and we get, we get up on them. They point them out to me. We close the distance. I put my binos on it and I'm like, oh no, they're young. We've got to back out of here. Like the muttering and like tongue clicking and like <laughs> oh, shaking really? of heads. Yeah, that, oh, it looks, just, looks pretty good to me. They're just like, guys, come on. <laughs> I mean, they're just like, I mean, I know they're just like, what is wrong with these people? You know, like, what is this guy's deal? 
can't believe it. Like we worked so damn hard and he's walking away. I mean, but yeah, it's just, uh-huh. it's like, it's that. They'll never, they'll never be able to reconcile. They'll never be able to come to terms with that. And so, you know, it's, it's funny. There's always this kind of tension around that. But, um, yeah, a, a, great, a great safari team of, of a professional hunter and trackers that are, that are working together in, in unison, is, it's a beautiful thing. When you guys strike off, how many trackers are with you? Two, with usually two in reserve. So it, it'll be... You'll have a senior tracking team that'll usually take the lead. If things go long, I mean, it is exhausting work, right? It gets very, very tedious. Um, if things go long or there's sort of a, a scenario where, for example, like we were talking about before, an animal joins another herd or, or an animal's gone through an area and another herd's crossed over and it's kind of confusing, they'll sort of fan out and everyone will sort of work together to kind of sort out what's happening and then sometimes the kind of the reserve guys will step up if the tracking job's getting long but but it'll be two with two in reserve what's the impact of of uh like how how is poaching felt meaning like you could be in america and you're aware of poaching here Right, but you don't hear about poaching here nearly as much as you hear about poaching in Africa. Yeah, and like anti-poaching squads and the black market around poaching and documentaries about poaching in Africa. Is it? I guess. I guess the, probably the biggest difference is like a poacher in America is more or less a, a hunter who just hasn't got the right license, whereas in in Tanzania, you know, there's commercial poachers who are out there you know trying to hunt elephants uh, you know for the ivory not not even necessarily for meat or for you know the the art of hunting they're, they're doing it to make a living um and they're part of like but but it's like a criminal syndicate it is of, yeah it is yeah there's, there's those three tiers that that roger mentioned you know there's the ivory poachers they're they're heavily armed and they're they're very aggressive and really there's not a lot that we as safari operators can do about them that and and i think that's something the tanzanian government's very cognizant of and and you know they've they've come down a lot harder on that tanzania is in an unfortunate position where it has you know obviously a lot of coastline and seaports which opens up smuggling potentials to to asia basically for ivory that sort of landlocked african countries don't have so we've seen a lot of pressure on our elephants um particularly in the early sort of 2010s that that was you know it was a big problem and it was keenly felt across almost all of the the hunting areas in the country that that you know the presence of those um commercial ivory po- poachers heavily armed was was there um and and the government realized it and you know needed to essentially use the army and and their other sort of law enforcement resources to deal with that because it's beyond our scope Commercial meat poaching is another problem. Often those guys will be armed too, but a lot of times it'll be snares and traps, you know, snares and gin trap type things that are set up and they'll go and check them and camp What kind out. of trap? Oh, like a, a gin trap is kind of the, the term we use for it. I'm trying to distra- It's like a leg hold, but giant with a car yeah. spring as the- as oh, the, like a bear trap. Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. a, yeah, what, what you'd call here a leg hold, you know, with the, um, with like a car spring as the kind of the, 
the spring component. Yep. Um, so it's it's powerful. It can grab a buffalo. It can grab whatever. Oh, really? Whoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it can grab a giraffe. And then, you know, there's other sort of nasty methods those guys will employ. One of them is driving around at night on motorcycles with a spotlight. And, and kind of spotlighting stuff like um, like giraffes, for example, and then basically chasing them on the motorbike and like hamstringing them with a, a machete. You're kidding me. No, yeah. unfortunately And that's not. for the bush meat trade. Or that's, that's for the wild that's game for trade. That's commercial meat yeah. trade. So that meat goes Consumed into- Consumed where? Consumed in, in- a lot of the local bars, villages. restaurants, oh, villages. I mean, wherever. It's sort of an underground. It's, a, it's, you know, you can now, I believe in Tanzania, get a permit to sell legally acquired game meat. But in in the past, when I first got started in the industry, similar to the US, you couldn't sell meat you know, derived from the hunting industry. It didn't have commercial value. So, you know, yeah, there's sort of this underground trade of meat. And then the third tier, like Roger says, which is the guys that, you know, th- that sort of ladder category, uh, that, that ladder category we can deal with, you know, we can do something about that, that sort of, you know, commercial meat poacher. Our anti-poaching teams are equipped to, to handle that. And then there's the kind of lone guy who, yeah, he's a subsistence farmer. Maybe an elephant came in and wiped out his crop. His family's hungry. You know, grab the old muzzle loader that he's got stashed under the- Richard, uh, you know. homemade. I mean, a lot of these oh, yeah. guns mm-hmm. that we confiscate, they've, they've shooting, made out of a bit of pipe. Shooting like chunks of rebar <laughs> that have been Ooh, sawed. Yeah. Or I've, seen, I've, seen, uh, I've seen double A batteries loaded into them. Um, as the know, slug. As the slug. And so those guys, you know, grab the old muzzle loader, grab the old bow and arrow and head out into the game reserve and try and try and get something for the family. And those are the guys when we catch them that, you know, we have a lot of sympathy for. And if we can find a way to incorporate them into our operation, um, particularly if they're good and you'll know they're good based on when you get them to lead you back to their camp and you see how much meat they've got. Oh. Stashed. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and if they're dialed, it's like, mm, all right, let's see what we can see what we can do here. Um, I do want to, we have enough law enforcement friends where I do have to say that uh, in the U.S., poaching is prolific uh, and you have a broad spectrum of people who participate and ranging from like, the honest mistake crowd to um, the people who fit the psychological profile of like a serial killer. And they're, they're, they're poaching so consistently to like scratch that exact same itch Um, and kind of everything in between to like very well organized groups of people um, who operate for years and years, taking excessive amounts of game um, for the trophy on the wall type of yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah like you have some real organized poaching stuff but it's not feeding a commercial market as much as it's feeding and that's ego and social yeah yeah. and and the commercial stuff that we read about would be um you know is very like mom and pop um the random butcher shop that is like yeah if you bring me a bunch of white-tailed deer i'll turn it into and we so, don't mean to downplay the um you know poaching as a as an issue in north america i think as as you say it's just got very it's rooted in very different um it's driven very differently i'm sure even the guy that's out commercial elephant poaching in in tanzania if you could offer him a steady job that didn't involve that he'd be he'd be more than happy to quit you know it's not 
it's not coming from ego. It's all, it's all from poverty and unfortunately a, a demand for those, you know, those products like yeah. ivory, rhino horn on the, you know, and, and the now guys, lion bones and things like that too. So. And the guys out in the field are, are making a fraction of the big kingpins that are selling the ivory on. I mean, yeah. they'll, they'll make a thousand dollars maybe on, on a pair of ivory horns, I mean, ivory tusks. And, um, the next guy will sell them for anything from 20 to $50,000, you know. Let um, me, uh, uh, you might already know this, but just as a way to c compare the two. So in the U.S. you have, um, speaking generally, generally the states own wildlife, okay? The states have a state fishing game. Age. The state owns the wildlife, whether the wildlife is on private land State land, federal land, the state has jurisdiction over the wildlife. The state will have a state agency that employs biologists and, and law enforcement individuals. That state agency, um, those biologists will make an assessment of population trends, um, models of how many animals are out there. They'll ascertain what a harvestable surplus would look like. They then take that harvestable surplus and they try to allocate it in a democratic fashion to the population. So these aren't real numbers, but like we have a thousand deer, we can safely kill 200 a year. Those 200 will now be democratically allocated to the best of our ability to those people who would like to go get one. And then we will govern how when, why, not why, we will govern how and when they go get the surplus we've identified. Yeah. And Corinne, it's important to know that the bulk of these state agency funding comes from uh, participation license and tag sales. Yeah. Very That's important. Very important Big detail. Deal. Yeah. It, it's quite circular. Yeah. Because so then them selling, them selling the 200 deer, you could... Them selling access the to the 200 yeah. deer through buying licenses is how they fund the research to set the quotas. And, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very similar in Africa. That it is. Although different countries are very different in that in Tanzania, for example, the, the land, the wildlife, everything is owned by the government. Um, the quotas are set by the government. We have a, a government official who comes out hunting with us to make sure we are sticking to all the regulations. Um, whereas, all the time? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Every, yeah. every hunting party has a game scout, a government employee. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's like commercial <laughs> fishing vessels. Wow. Yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. At all times. And they're a part Boy, of that the changed team. it up. Can you huh. imagine if every hunting party in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know. Had a game, <laughs> game <laughs> There he is. Take the shot. Well, I don't know. Really? Yeah. It's always present? It's very regulated. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're there to make sure we abide by all, all the regulations. What a huge commitment from the agency or whatever the appropriate term yeah, is. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. they're, there, and they're, a, they're a great help too. You know, when we run into those poachers, it, we don't have to do a citizen's arrest, you know, mm -hmm. or in they carry authority. They're, yeah. a, they're an agent of, of the you know, Department of Natural it's, Resources and Tourism. It's the You're same with, a, with our anti-poaching Are they patrols. generally good hunters too? Some of them are. Yeah, a lot of them get passionate about it and, and, you know, enjoy being out 
in the wilderness like we but did. But you also kind of had a look that said some of them may be uh, bureaucratically placed there and are yeah, a little, a, they stick out a little bit. Some some start in the towns and then might get placed out in the field yeah, sure. against their wishes. Yep. Um, same in, you know, in any yeah. big But bureaucracy. in your camp, to make sure that you guys aren't doing, like, what would be the most common bad thing that would happen? Well, I mean... We don't, we don't break any of the rules, really, but, but, what, but like, there are laws like you're not allowed to hunt from a vehicle. You have to be 25 meters or 50 meters away from a vehicle at any time. You can't, I can't hunt over okay. water holes, yeah, you can't for example. Also, there, yeah. oh, that's, I guess that's what I was curious about. There yeah. is interesting. Yeah, we're not allowed to hunt at night. You know, they're as interested in methodology as they are and that you're not killing too much of whatever. I would yeah. say a combination of both. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're making sure that essentially the, the, the act of government that you know that governs what we do they're there to make sure that we adhere to that but as much of that as as they do they're also there to support us in our efforts you know to combat poaching yeah um they're there to be yeah they're they're essentially the law enforcement arm of the Department of Natural Resources and Tourism, that, that yeah. they are able to, you know, if we run into a poacher, they're going to make the arrest. They're going to make hmm. sure that everything's properly documented and written up and so on and so forth and, and take that person into custody, you know, which is something that we don't have the authority to yeah. do. Um, so it's very much a combined effort. Like our anti-poaching teams are half our employees of Robin Hurt's Fares and half from the Tanzania Wildlife Department. And they all go out on patrol together and, help each other out. And you guys are operating out of the same camp. Yeah, they, they'll they have their You're bases. You're like hunting and hunting poachers all kind of at the same time. The, yeah, the, the two go together. Every time we're out in the field, we're, we're on patrol. You yeah. know, we have our actual anti-poaching units as well, but, but when we're in the field, we're naturally doing anti-poaching. Yeah. And, and, yeah. So all of Tanzania, you are not allowed to hunt the water holes. No one can or specific you can't hunt to your uh, nope. apart from a few animals Crocodile that live in water, yeah. Sitatunga, yeah. water but there's there's a few very okay. specific animals that So other than aquatic or semi aquatic yeah. species that you just not I mean like you know, crocodile is in the water all the time. You know, Got there's it. an exception for that, but we can't sit over water and wait for a buffalo to come and drink. God, that yeah. seems so nitpicky for Africa. Pretty Being amazing. someone that's never been there and has yeah. no idea what I'm talking but about, the, I just thought it was a little I, more I, wild westy. Yeah. But, but it makes it a challenge, which to me sure. is half of what hunting's about. And these Africa. rules weren't set, um, weren't set 20 years ago, 30 years ago. These rules have been around, you know, since the early days. I would hmm. say probably... Roosevelt safari era, it was probably a little looser, but for sure there would have been a concept of, oh, you know, we don't, we don't shoot stuff over water. You know, we don't no shoot kidding. big, we don't shoot big tuskers, big elephants over water. We track them from the water hole and that, that, that ethic would have been, uh, these things are basically ethics that the East African Professional Hunters Association sort of held, you know, held their members to account with these sort of ethical guidelines that then got sort of enshrined into law, In law yeah. and that, that we now are, are absolutely bound to both ethically and legally. W would you say that they're, they're complex or I mean like well, how, how hard would it be for someone to step in and understand that's, that's, the regulatory regime? That's why we do like to become a professional hunter, you, you do a two year apprenticeship and then you have to sit an exam on the law I mean, because every species, there's there's different rules. Like, to 
hunt a, a male leopard, first of all, it's got to be male, but it's got to be over a certain length or, you know, it can be confiscated. And same with a, a lion has to be aged in Tanzania. And, and if it's under seven, there's a fine and it can be confiscated if it's under another age. So, so when people like to point out that Cecil the lion was 13, he couldn't have been under seven. It, no, in no. Tanzania, yeah, you, had to, you have to hunt a seven-year-old, a, a seven-year-old or older, and I mean the Cecil thing is is something that sort of hits a bone. Have you heard me. about that before? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> we've been laboring. It's been yeah. an albatross around our neck for like however many years it's been yeah. now, and it, I mean it had a real impact for us. And it I, did. I, it. I, I mean, was only making it. Oh, okay, go on. I mean, Roger can go into it a little more, but we've both seen and know of anecdotally and, and seen with our own eyes areas that were perhaps not the most productive area from the standpoint of there wasn't a big ticket item from a planes game standpoint. Didn't have a good population of sable or roan antelope, for just example. Just not a huge variety. Not a big variety. You know, it had like buffalo and lions. And, and the lions, because of the population of them there would be a, a, enough of a big ticket item that you could generate if you could sell a couple of lion hunts a year, one, maybe two, you know, again, abiding by those rules of harvesting those old lions, you would be able to sustain and justify it, you know, having that area as part of your company's concessions and doing anti-poaching, so on and so forth. We can literally point to areas where with Cecil, that rug was pulled out from under us. Clients weren't booking those lion hunts. The, the outfitter can't make money from that area anymore. Gave it back to the government, essentially. Like, I mean, we the, don't the want paper it. records are there. There was, before Cecil, there was 160 hunting concessions in Tanzania. And within three or four years of that, the government basically, I mean, the, the the hunting outfitters had returned a lot of these leases because they didn't have the business for them. And it dropped to 120. And those 40 areas, the sort of fringe areas, they then had no use. And I watched it with my own eyes, some of our neighboring concessions, where everything went. It wasn't, you know, it had a negative impact on everything. Like huh. there wasn't a tree left because... If no one was looking after that area, the, the local villagers would use it for something. So first of all, the loggers would move in, cut all the trees, then the illegal grazing would come in, and there's no one there to sort of stop it. And then after that, then the farmers would come in and you know plant their crops. And within literally a year to two years, this pristine wilderness area was just farmland without a breathing, living wild creature. So you believe, I mean, you're saying this, that's why I clarify. You, the, 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 we call him Cecil. Yeah. The Cecil lion debacle. Um, everyone had the right like, intentions. Like actually led to land, like actually led to a, mm. abandonment of hunting lands, which yeah. were then developed. I mean, just Thousands in Tanzania, we're talking, that's probably 40 million acres of wilderness that was lost because of the Cecil yeah. incident. Really? Yeah. I have no and trouble. It didn't even Zimbabwe. happen in Tanzania, but it's it's a fact. What I country mean, did it happen in? Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe yeah. There's a there's a high roller here in town. He's kind of not, he's operating here and um, he didn't grow up hunting. And I heard how he's going to Africa to go hunting, but his wife has forbade him 
shooting a lion. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what it did. Is a lot of people who she doesn't were, want their holiday home burned yeah. down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it made I, people. It didn't just affect lion hunting. It affected hunting in Africa. Full stop. Like your avid hunters would still come, but a lot of the middle ground. For a few years, we're like, well, Things got I'm not hot. sure what well, you know, the other hammered. people I work with will feel about this. We have, Tanzania has 40% of Africa's wild lions in Tanzania. Within the huh. borders of Tanzania are 40% of Africa's wild lions. So we were hit hardest because hmm. that, for a lot of these areas, that was our big ticket item. You know, that was our draw card. We could offer a really well done lion hunt that we can back up with with actual conservation data. I mean, Oxford University did a study that basically showed in, in um, a, an ecosystem in central Tanzania that there was there's no discernible difference between the populations of lions and leopards, so those sort of top predators, and in the photographic hunting areas versus the hunting areas that are, that have a sustainable offtake. Um, yeah, we actually funded our own population studies of both lion and leopard in, in our hunting areas because again most of the research was done in the national parks where it was comfortable and easy for the scientists so we we paid for some researchers from um kingsville actually to come come out and study the lions for two years and the leopards and make population to check that our quotas were actually within the right regions so do you have lot do you have uh in your areas, do you have lion lions that you could hunt, but there's no clients that want to buy that lion tag? Yeah, definitely. And yeah. and the the other thing that the reality of it all is, is in the wild, very few lions make it over the seven year, you know, age restriction for hunting, uh-huh. because it's not like living in the Serengeti where there's just plentiful wildlife everywhere. It's it's a tough life. And these younger, stronger lions come in and they push those older males out into these fringe areas. They get injured. They can't feed themselves. They, they die a pretty nasty death. So for one, to find a lion over the seven-year age is, is very hard. And then the pressure on a professional hunter that he's got to judge that it's definitely over seven years old by, by just looking at it. What, yeah, what are you looking at when you look at it? There's a whole, whole range of things, things from nose mouth, coloration, yeah. mane development, color body of their shape, color of their teeth. They have oh, these yeah. glandular patches sort of on their on back, back legs. legs. Look yeah. how that how they've developed. I mean, it's it's an inexact science. Yeah. Trail cameras are a, are a real help because we are, can get our trackers helpful on that kind of stuff. Yeah, a little for bit. Sure. But a little bit. It comes down to your judgment. At the They're going to the say day. it's yeah. a huge lion, no matter yeah. what. <laughs> yeah. And it might be a three-year-old. They're going to be like, oh, it's a monster. And it's then like, it's can... like people here with mountain lions. Yeah. yeah. Big old time. Big old time. <laughs> yeah. Every mountain lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, oh, totally. black bear. So we were coming down the road looking for turkeys last weekend. And there's a, a black bear about the size of my dog. Yeah. Little white patch on his chest. Yeah. And he's sitting like my dog. Yeah. One leg kind of kicked out <laughs> on his back like this. Wait, yeah. Literally waiting for cars to get down the road, you know? And... Uh, I turned to my buddy Kyler after he passed, and I was like, knowing the area, I was like, you know, let's swing around, shoo that little little guy off the road a little bit. And when we had flipped around, 
there was another, there's like a truck down the road, like piling junk out of the, like obviously digging for their rifle. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just felt, I was like, I right, we Too just late. can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where in a, in an area where there's a, a thriving lion population, it won't be just one male with a pride. It'll be often a coalition. And those males will frequently be related. They'll be um, sort of litter mates. Mm -hmm. So like cousins, brothers, sometimes a father and sons that'll sort of, you know, sort of run that pride. They might run multiple prides. So there might be two different groups of females, X number of miles apart. And there's this kind of coalition of males that are sort of split their attention or kind of, you know, coordinate to run these prides. What'll happen as those lions age, you know, they get, they get weaker and weaker and there'll be this, there's this other sort of class of lions that's nomads and, the, and, and those will be basically the young males of those prides that the coalition that haven't joined the coalition and the coalition won't tolerate them once they get to a certain age. So they'll kick them out. And so they become, you know, they're young nomads. They're out in the wilderness, you know, sometimes in groups, sometimes alone, kind of basically building themselves up, um, doing a lot of hunting, doing a lot of kind of bonding with their future kind of coalition mates and, and getting themselves ready to go challenge for one of those prides. And then the other category of nomads is ones that have been basically kicked out as a result of one of those battles for dominance. And the, when the battle for dominance happens, a lot of times it'll result in the death of those older lions huh. um, or, or uh, there know, was any a, number of the lions. There was a brutal video from the Serengeti the other day of, of like literally the king of the Serengeti being wiped out by three younger males. I mean, it, just getting torn. It's to a pieces. nasty ending. It's, yeah. Huh. Yeah. But the ones that survive go, will then go into that nomad phase again, but he's never coming back to pride dominance. God. He's, he's, he's not, just, he's not he, building up. He's, he's on retirement. the, he's on the downswing. He's, he's done his job. Yeah. He's yeah. on the downswing. Is that a good so one to try to find? That's the only one we're going to yeah. find. We huh. can't shoot, we can't shoot a pride male ethically because if you upset the balance of that coalition what'll happen is it'll it'll just be inherently weaker having lost one of its members which can precipitate that pride takeover from another group of males and what that'll do is once those males take over if there's any cubs from the previous males they'll kill them and that has a physiological effect on the females brings them back into into season brings them back into estrus so then those new males can breed them so it's like the romans yeah, it's yeah. brutal it's, it's I mean, it's real similar yeah. to, to our cats here though right yeah. so Number one killer of mountain lions is mountain lions. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. So, but is that predatory or is it 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 can be both, but typically males are killing males, but gotcha. also the exact same, like males are killing kittens because that female will come back we'll come into back season into cycle, yeah. like right away. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. When when they do uh with coastal brown bears, when you do like what are they eating? Yeah. Um if you were to list like what a mature male coastal brown bears diet is high on the list is brown bears. Yeah. I told a woman that at a party one time and she was just incredulous. She nearly clawed my no, eyes it's like out. Amazing, it's, like, <laughs> it's regarded as like a primary food source. Yeah. I, I mean, I have no trouble. Cubs are a primary food source. Yeah. And, and the odd fisherman's right in there. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it so funny though? It's like, well, what is your agenda with that? And you're like, well, no, it's just what, that's what happens. It's, it's, it's nature. It's nature. It's what they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, guys, you guys have largely 
maybe I'm getting this wrong, but you guys have um, been for different reasons moved out of the elephant hunting business. Well, yeah. we we as a company made a a choice about 20 years ago that we couldn't ethically hunt elephants in our hunting areas in Tanzania. The poaching got so bad about 15 years ago that, you know, for a, a mature elephant with big ivory, they, it takes 50, 60 years to, to get to that level. And Are they that old? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I knew they were yeah. old. Man. Oh, they're old. Yeah. So oh, my God, really? To get yeah. to the point that we would feel comfortable hunting one again would take another 20, 30 years from now, you know, just to build up those populations to to an ethical level for us. But there's still ethical, you know, government limits, but we just personally decided... You don't sell the hunts. If you If you want to, well, we'll, we'll suggest people go to Botswana or parts of Namibia where they've got too many elephant and they, they actually physically have to cull on top of the, the you know, the foreign hunting clients. Um, you know, Botswana at one point was having to cull 40 or 50,000 elephant every year. What? Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. No it's, way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the crop damage that they can do and, the, and again, you know, elephants are extremely migratory by nature. You know, they'll follow grass, they'll follow the rains, they'll follow ancient ancestral paths to, to get to different food resources at different times of the year. And of course, all that now has been like interdicted by highways, development, yeah. farmland <laughs> and so on. So... You know, if they can't do those migrations, they're increasingly pushed into these smaller and smaller areas and they just eat themselves out of house and home. And also they get in conflict with those surrounding agricultural communities. And, and that's where, you know, the necessity of a cull comes in. But we're, we're not in that place in Tanzania anymore. And, and what's, you know, what's fundamentally changed for us is you know, we, if you believe as we do, and I think as everyone in this room does, whether it's in the North American model or in our model, that, you know, an animal there's in any sort of functional sort of population of animals, there's a sustainable offtake that, that can be managed and, and, you know, can be utilized, whether it's lions or white-tailed deer, that, you know, that that's something that that's possible. But when you've got that commercial poaching pressure over and above on top of that, it just does, it's not sustainable anymore. We can't, you know, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, you know, there's harv there's elephants we could harvest in these areas and it wouldn't be detrimental to the population. So, you know, Robin Hurt Safaris, we're out of that business. Well, that actually elephants leads me aren't to dropping another point, yeah. offspring every single year. Too, no, no, know, no, so. no, they're not dropping four, four to seven year carving interval. 22-month yeah. gestation. Yeah. Elephants, mm. it's a, it's elephants a will breed well when they're left to their own devices and when they have habitat, but it's a slow process. It's generational. So if you lose a whole bunch like we did, it takes a long time to get to back. recover. But what Morgan was saying a minute ago is something that it, it touches a bone with me. For, for some reason, hunting in Africa is labeled as, as trophy hunting. And... Okay, trophies do come into it. Like hunters always, there are people who want the bigger animal, but it should really be called sustainable hunting, what we do. That's that's what our company is all about. It's making sure that our offtake does not affect the population. And and it's my dad always says it's we're basically no different from a, a beef cattle farmer. Like the wildlife is our crop and, and we manage it. 
we have sustainable offtake, but we don't want to do anything detrimental to that wildlife population because that's how we make our living. Mm -hmm. And I know, I guess a lot of celebrities and everyone have, have made this stigma about hunting in Africa where it's all these rich Americans, you know, standing over an animal, you know, and an ego thing where that's, that's not what we're about. You know, we're traditional ethical hunters with very strong practices on age, sex, everything like that. Well, it, yeah. it's very confusing. And, and I'll tell you, like, the argument that I hear all the time and I have no answer to because I have no experience, right, is like, well, where does that money go from that uh, elephant hunt? Yeah. yeah. Right? And it's like, well. It generally all goes straight back into that area, you know, because the game fee goes, gets paid to the government, which funds their game scouts who are back in the area patrolling. And that's what I was saying with these, with these areas that disappeared after Cecil was because there was, there was no longer any funding and, and they put the funding back into the core places that are bringing them money. And that's, so, that's what I'm confused about too. Cause so you, uh, pay a, like a lease yeah. to the state for that concession. Yeah. But then at that point, it sounds as if it then becomes your responsibility to fully manage that concession. And in conjunction with the, with the wildlife department. But that so, wildlife department will not operate there unless there's an active concession. Well, they, they just have limited funding and they're going to put the funding at their core resources. So like the Serengeti, for instance, that has millions of tourists coming through paying fees, they have all the funding they need for, for that area and they're going to protect it because that's bringing in the, the big bucks. And the more peripheral the areas are, the less funding reaches those places and that's where hunting comes in like without hunting most of the areas we operate would disappear in a matter of literally years so your yeah. your business affords your business we bring affords in the, the government yeah. to be able to do monitoring in that area exactly 100 yeah. so tanzania has got i think it's 40 percent of their total land mass is set aside for some sort of um conservation effort, some sort of wildlife conservation and sort of various tiers of wilderness. So before when you were talking about like no one lives in our in our Luganzo concession because it's a game reserve. Well that's kind of our our top tier of protection. Below that there's other tiers where you'll have areas where there are you know human inhabitants there is a village inside the area. There are people grazing through that area seasonally. There are people, you know, Honey hunters. Honey, people collecting honey, people collecting firewood, doing other activities. But there's still game there and there's still, you know, it's still a hunting concession. There's still management going on. There's still kind of an interaction between the, those people that are inhabiting or, or seasonally using the area and the hunting operator and the government. But, but essentially, you know, that's a huge chunk of land that the Tanzanian government's committed to wildlife conservation. Like, I'm not sure what percentage of, you know, of North America is set aside for some sort of, you know, wilderness or hunting or well, whatever. Well, there's a, uh, what is it? Less than 2%. No, but, well, yeah, but no, the 30 by 30, is that what it is? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But that's a way different definition. Yeah. By, by two thousand, by two thousand thirty, having is that right? Yeah. By two thousand thirty, having thirty percent of the U.S. in some kind of, 
Uh, it's protective yeah, and state. It, in, yeah. it incorporates things like CRP and yeah. yeah. Um, well, the lines, so under some kind of conservation model. Yeah, right? and the lines here are a lot blurrier between wildlife habitat and agriculture. Right, like you can go on a ranch that's being fairly intensively, you know, farmed or ranched, and there'll be white-tailed deer, there'll be antelope, there'll be elk coming down onto the alfalfa, there'll be predators, you know, following those animals. In Tanzania, at least, in northern Masailand, it's a little different where people just graze animals. But in most of central kind of western and southern Tanzania, there's like a, a hard delineation between agricultural land and land for wildlife. Got it. And there's very little spillover because a lot of that agriculture is subsistence farming. So there's no ability for those people to accept, oh, well, a percentage of my crop's going to go to the buffaloes and that's just kind of the way it is. That's, that's not a, that's and, a non-starter. And anything that steps in there is going to get poached. Is going to get poached. Because there's no one yeah, as food. controlling it. As food this is, and because it's detrimental to their damage. agriculture. Yeah. This is the biggest thing that you have to understand about Africa is that for, for wildlife to survive, it has to have a value because it's either going to be eaten or it's destructive to their, their crops or it's killing their cattle, you know, their, yeah. their livestock. In the U.S., we're on, we're like on edge, very guarded about the pay-to-play model. Cert- certain forces are not, okay. right? Yeah. But like, you know, um, you're kind of like meat and potatoes, non-aristocratic hunters are worried about the pay-to-play model because it violates an understanding of how we manage wildlife. When I was talking about that, that at its ideal, wildlife is allocated democratically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and pay-to-play comes into there's a hundred versions of pay-to-play. Emerging pay-to-play would be um, things like governor's tags, auction tags, where you're pulling it out of democratically. It's You're taking animals, bighorn sheep, elk, whatever, and the tag, the opportunity would have been allocated democratically, but it goes to a highest bidder. So that would be an affront to pay-to-play. Another huge pay-to-play aspect in the U.S. is the rapidly, I mean, the increased, still increasing numbers of acreage that are um, where hunting rights are leased. Right. Okay. It's a pay-to-play model. And it's and it's generally regarded by most folks. It's it's watching this progression um, is disheartening to people. They don't. They, it's depressing. Yeah. Okay. But you guys were telling me when, when we spoke recently that um this is not new and like the the entire African system is built around pay to play. It's always been pay to play. It's always been that way. Even, you know, going back again to the, the Roosevelt safari, you know, that you couldn't, I mean, the early guys would go to Cape town or something like that and, and buy a bunch of cattle and hire a bunch of guys and load up these wagon trains and head out, you know, into the wilderness. But but it very quickly became if if someone wanted to come and experience Africa, whether it was someone with the almost limitless means that that Roosevelt had at that time, um, or you know a, a British colonial officer, they would you know they'd need to engage the services of someone who could navigate that, you know, deal with the ver- you know interact with the various tribes they were going to come across, you know, m- make sure that you know 
they were able to find the appropriate habitats where those species resided. And I think our industry's kind of always been that way. And I sort of get the discomfort that that a lot of people have with this notion that you can have a guy living on the edge of a game reserve, but he's not allowed to hunt there. Like, is that really, like, if you, you're a resident of Tanzania, just a resident, like, we, there is no possible way for you to go legally get. We used to have a, resident hunting. For, for but, all but intents and purposes, no. Yeah. But, huh. I, but what I would say is that a lot of people probably, I don't know if a lot of people have thought about this, but I've thought about it quite a lot recently, having spent a lot of time in North America, is... I think the North American model is underpinned by something else other than sort of just the dem- like democratization of wildlife. And that is the sort of like presupposition that there's a large number of this pe- people in this country that aren't living hand to mouth, right? I-, I fundamentally believe that the North American model wouldn't function in, a con- in this country if 60% of the population of this country was living on a dollar a day and yeah. trying to figure out ways to feed themselves. Well, you know what backs you up on that? No. Uh, it didn't. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. No, quite, yeah. no, no. Like we, went, we went yeah. through that. No, you know, for we sure. We went through that for yeah. 200 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, they, and they wiped the place clean. Wiped the place clean, yeah. right? And, and, and Africa, and I speak you know, through the lens of Tanzania specifically, is still on that development trajectory where you know, there's a growing population, there's all this pressure, there's a huge number of people that are living on a really, really hand-to-mouth existence. And, you know, democratizing wildlife in with those in under those circumstances would lead to, I think like it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like there's all this pressure from from of consumption on very limited resources. And also I would think if you, I think if you spoke to the average Tanzanian, like sport hunting isn't a high priority for them. It'd just yeah. be about the meat. It'd be yeah. about the meat. And so what, what we do, what our objective is as a company is to basically extend those benefits to those communities, partner with those communities and allow those people that live on the edge of the game reserve, okay, they can't grab their bow and arrow, draw, you know, apply for a tag and go in there and shoot a buffalo. But, you know, that there's meat coming back to their communities. There's employment coming back to their communities. There's things they need like clinics, schools, et cetera, et cetera. So they're benefiting in an indirect sort of one degree removed from our operations as opposed to just sort of saying, well, hey, this resource is quite literally for everybody in the sense that it's accessible yeah. to you. So the wildlife isn't allocated, but some of the funding is alloc- some of the funding is allocated. Definitely. And we yeah. couldn't do what we do without partnership with those communities, right? Like if if our model was roll in there, run roughshod over them, put up fences, keep them out, you know, have our anti-poaching guys, you know, essentially you know, intimidating them to stay out of our area, it wouldn't work because there's more of them than there are us. Always going to be. So the only way that our model functions is if those communities feel that they're a stakeholder in this this, wild, this model, mm. that they're benefiting. Um, and so that's really, that's our biggest challenge. And that's our, that's our primary focus. I mean, America has a great system. I mean, the, the tag system. Oh, is, we like to talk about it. It's the best in the world. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't really fully understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Unironically, it is. Yeah. Um, but there's some preconditions, I think, that, that are it, missing It's a great point. Us. Randall and I are working on a project um, 
we're working on a project about it'll be a it'll be an audio book like an audio like a yeah an audio book i mm-hmm. imagine his title would be dr williams on that we're working on a, the first one we're doing is a history of the of the deer well what we call the long hunters if you heard of a feller named daniel boone oh yeah he made his name for himself as a long hunter, but focused heavily on the deer trade in colonial America. Oh, interesting. Because they were in bad shape for a while. Oh, and what you're talking about when you talk about, like, what about when everyone is in poverty? Right. How does the system? So um, there's so many things that in Randall's research that just, uh, things that are brought to mind and talking to you about what goes on in Tanzania would be these like very early wild temptation uh, attempts, not temptations, attempts at slowing the slaughter. Right. From pot hunters, from professional poachers, of which, you know, Boone was essentially a professional poacher, um, meaning that if you didn't own land in a district, you weren't allowed to hunt. Interesting. You weren't allowed to hunt somewhere where you didn't live nearby. Like the European model. Yeah, and like trying to, which no one paid attention to. (laughs) But like them trying to go like, okay, how would you do something like this? And I I couldn't believe one one of the first prohibitions on deer hunting was in the 1700s. Wow. Yeah. Early. They're just going like, well, what if we had a time of year? What if we had a time of year when you can't hunt? And basically the response is, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope but, everybody else pays attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but it was. It was like, like, like sort of watching this young country to be going like, well, let's say you did want to save some of it. Like, where do you begin? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and, with a bunch of ideas that didn't hold. I so mean, what they, defines a long hunter? They went on some long ass hunting trips. Got it. Yeah. Got it. It's <laughs> just uh, okay. Interesting. They would only the... return if they had enough meat to to bring back. Wow. Okay. Right. And that's yeah. And hide, yeah. Hide, hide hunters. They were generally like deer. They were deer. They were hunting. Generally, they, they sold a lot of bush meat. Got it. Okay. They yeah. sold a lot of bush meat, but they were generally hunting uh, hides, primarily white-tailed deer hides that would get exported to Europe. Interesting. And there's right. also the parallel of like global demand for commodities fueling excessive harvest, right? Like when Same you're, what you're talking about. When you're talking about ivory trade, right? Like in the commercial demand for those resources. Mm. Oh, yeah. Millinery like there trade. Is a, there's the like a belts. bottomless demand for, or an endless demand, whatever you want to call it, for white-tailed deer skins yeah. to turn into leather yeah. for leather products. And it's just like from people that didn't really care how you got them, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as, like you said, you talked about earlier, like if you can get them to the port, that's good enough for me. Good enough. Yeah. 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 The, the fascinating thing with North America to me is like the obviously those animal populations just just took a dive. I mean, I've heard about the it, in relation to turkeys and white-tailed deer mm-hmm. in particular, but obviously the habitat was still there to enable that once once they had figured out through whatever like political or social means to put this structure yeah. to like conserve these animals, set seasons, you know, limit harvest. Once that was in place, the animals were able to bounce back because that habitat was intact. Yep. Whereas what we face really is 
like Roger was talking about before, that loss of habitat. And I think you said something once along the lines of like, when you see someone building some sort of structure, you, you think in your head, well, that'll never be habitat yeah. again. And, and that's, what we, that's what we deal with day in, day out. Once that field of maize gets planted, once that tree gets cut, once, the, you know, once all that's done, once those cattle are in there, that'll never be habitat again. Uh, and there, and there even if you wanted to, it's it's a fifteen to twenty five year process to recreate something that's destroyed in six months. Well, and so, politically, you've yeah. got to evict those people, which is yeah. a nightmare. There's one exception to my rule: is my friend Matt Cook has a farm, yeah, and there was a house on there, and he, uh, the fire department came in and burned the house down, like to do practice, yeah, and then he scraped up the foundation, and they just planted it over the top of the house, and. Every time you go through that area, there is something <laughs> hanging out, sitting on the house. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's not Bear. really, it's not really a scalable wow. model. No, <laughs> like, no. One time we go, so one time you go by, there's a groundhog standing there. Last time, two times ago, I went by it. There's a fox squirrel standing there, and I'm not kidding you. We were just doing a fundraiser hunt there, and the turkey that my like my fundraiser guy that I was guiding, helping. The turkey that he killed, when I spotted that turkey, it was standing on that place. <laughs> nice. So just imagine. So, so there's that place. Yeah, hats off to that guy. I often kind of have fantasies like driving the Paradise Valley, like maybe we could just scrape all this back. Oh, listen, oh buddy, you're talking here. Uh, let, let me choose my words very carefully. Had someone in 1800 thought that they would just put a giant trailhead right alongside what would become I-90. And that was the trailhead for that, for everything to the south of there. Yeah. They would be, they would be applauded today. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that ain't going to happen. Um, I had some other point I was going to make about... Uh, some, what the hell were we talking about before I started talking about my buddy's place? Well, that habitat when it goes, it never comes oh, back. Well, we've, been ta- we've, we've mentioned Roosevelt a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So... We've been mentioning his safari. Yeah. Sort of, you, you mentioned like the habitat was still there. Yeah. Uh, his his kind of genius at the time was, um. it was just focused on basically preservation of, preservation of habitat. Right. Um, it was stop, well, stop the slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Like stop unregulated slaughter and then save ground. Right. Knowing that just the the the, the fecundity, the right. biology of the animals, if you stop killing every last one of them yeah. and you save chunks of ground, it would kind resolve of take care of itself. Yeah. 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 Later, later, much later, you know, in the fifties, sixties, we started to really do a lot more around putting animals back on habitat. Right. Um, you know, moving animals around, recovering stuff. But initially the the conservation play in the US was uh stop commercial slaughter. And, and put some kind of loss prevention in place on, on habitat. Right. And then later we started like to fine tune through, you know, all these restoration, you know, um, yeah, the captive breeding and putting animals back out. But early mm-hmm. on, man, it was like, it was just those two things. And it's, it's what, what kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're talking about here 
is like what we're talking about that you guys see in Africa is like try to stop commercial slaughter. Right. And then try to hang on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. You know? South Africa went through a, like a reintroduction phase. They did. Well, yeah. Cause they privatized, they went a different direction to us. They privatized the kind of resource. And so I think they went from something like 4 million head of game in the entire country to like 20 million in a couple of decades because mm. essentially you know th- there became a market for you know people to go over there and hunt or you know do photo safaris or whatever it was um and and yeah people started breeding game yeah. since they could own it they could breed it so they they'd you know buy a couple of whatever and put them together and breed and then sell the the excess and it sort of repopulated i think it um you know there's downsides to that model a little bit like you're talking about your uh, your shed antlers right there's a little something i think in a lot of people where knowing that animal is the the sort of offspring of captive maybe takes a little bit of the little bit of the gloss off it mm-hmm. um it's certainly, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily firmly in that camp, but like I feel that a little bit. You know, one of the great things about Tanzania is like you're hunting a wilderness that's kind of always been like that. Yeah. Um, and, and those animals are the descendants of the ones that Roosevelt hunted, you know, so there's that. Um, but, but you can't argue with the success of that model. From a just numbers of yeah. animals on the ground standpoint, it's a hugely successful model. Cal's got a question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So I was going to say, going back to the Roosevelt protecting the habitat thing, I I think that's our biggest issue in in Africa right now is like the population in Africa is already 1.3 billion people and it's set to basically double in the next 25 years. So the the pressure on land is just like it's never been before. Yeah, you're not terribly optimistic, are you? No, it's, I mean, everyone's so in the great world is, is anti hunting and especially African hunting, but, but we're preserving these huge wilderness areas that have so much pressure. And, and I, I would be totally for it if there were other forms of land use that could protect it. And the photo tourism has their areas, but none of those people want to go to the places we hunt. And it needs something Mm -hmm. to protect those areas. And, and at the moment we're the answer. And until someone comes up with something else, People need to realize how important what we do is. Yeah, there's that huge temptation to like say, well, just swap the gun for the camera, right? And then there's no killing. There's no, you know, it's then it's all quote unquote sustainable. Um, The issue with that is Tanzania already has, I think, on the mainland, like I think it's 14 or 16 national parks. And I think three or four of them generate enough revenue from visitors to basically cover all those costs that we talked about, like having guys patrol the boundaries, having guys work with the local communities to kind of encourage, you know, participation, but not encroachment. Um, And the rest of them, you know, and the the government's doing their best, but again, resources are tight. It's a, it's a country that's trying to develop, trying to create more opportunities for their people. Resources are tight. So a lot of those areas that are ostensibly, you know, for photographic tourism are just not in good shape. They're not getting the, the visitors to, to sort of cover the costs of, of managing those areas. And I I can tell you a photo tourist isn't going to follow 
tracks of buffalo for eight or ten hours a day in the baking hot sun, pushing through thorn bushes to get a grainy image of the arse end of one <laughs> heading in the opposite <laughs> direction. But hunters will do that all day long and pay for the privilege. Yeah. So we have a different, and while getting bitten by tetsy flies and, you know, dodging snakes, I mean, yeah. we it's just a different it's a different clientele for a different product but that ecosystem that has the low game density the sandy soil and the tetsy flies is no less valid of an ecosystem and no less important for sustaining certain species than the serengeti is in my view cal's got a question for you Oh, I mean, that was a beautiful statement, so I was going <laughs> to let it linger a little oh. bit. But yeah, absolutely. Habitat, man. It's all habitat. It is. And one of the greatest things about hunting is the fact that um, a lot of people go to New York State, but they don't go to the parts of New York State that I go to, yeah. right? Yeah. Or swap that out for Montana or Maryland mm. or wherever. Uh, it just takes you off of the tourist map, and it's it's a... Ultimately, in my mind, a much more real experience, right? Oh, yeah. big time. I mean, the thing that I say to people that it's like kind of become a little bit of something I repeat again and again, but safari, the word safari doesn't mean hunting trip. There's a word for hunting in Swahili. It's kuinda, which I also think kind of rolls off the tongue, to be honest. But that wasn't selected as the word to describe what we do. Safari was. And what safari means is journey. And, and people forget like again to Roger's previous point about you know us sort of getting labeled and, and tarred with this trophy hunter brush people you know just imagine in their mind's eye a bunch of kind of out of shape guys driving around on a truck indiscriminately shooting animals but safari is so much more than that and it's exactly what you say it's that connection with those wild places it's the adventure it's, it's the adventure it's it's the drama of it i mean you know hopefully not as dramatic as what Roger has <laughs> experienced. That's the high drama. I like yeah. to keep things a little more mellow. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the drama. It's the success. It's the failure. It's the sunrises, the sunsets. It's the, the sounds. The, I mean, you know, on, on the last safari I was on, we, we bumped into this giant python, like 13 foot long and as thick as my thigh. And it was just, it was so cool. You know, we, we just, we talked about that around the campfire. Nothing, nothing got killed that day, you know, but, but it was sat, a trophy day. Oh, right? We sat around the yeah. campfire and we're just like, I mean, my tracker stepped, nearly stepped on its head and it sort of reared up and it was, it was incredible. Um, and yeah, we, we talked about it around the campfire for hours and it was just like one of those things where you realize like that's safari. It's the escape as well. It's like a lot of our clients say there's, there's nowhere else in the world that they truly just switch off from everything mm -hmm. apart from being out tracking buffalo. Or no, in big in wild spaces, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to get that elsewhere. Um, I do have to ask you this one thing. It, it's not nearly as romantic and fun as, as the things we've been talking about, but what you have to go through to be a professional hunter as it is a profession, right? And then what is your response to uh, people in North America who casually respond to themselves or refer to themselves rather as professional hunters? 
Is this a subtle dig at Stephen Ranella? Never in my life. I want you to go scout. I talk a lot. It is recorded. I want you to find where I've ever said that. No, 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 no. I think other people have said it about you. Sure, it's good. No, I'm being very facetious. It's 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 a brotherhood. Um, so I don't. I'm not in the business of um of kind of dunking on other people. Shit talking. yeah, shit talking people that make their living. Um, you know, guiding. You know, whatever, doing whatever it is that they do that kind of allows them to refer to themselves that way. I had a professional. Shed antler hunter on the podcast recently. Really? Well, it turns oh, things man, into dog. That tricks. is that. I'm going to have to think about. So he that was one. a PH. I'm going to think he about was a PSH. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that one for a while because I'm still I'm I'm still a little bit professional about mush, mushroom hunter. Yeah, for I guess, sure. Yeah, you do enough of anything, you you become a professional. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. And I mean, ours is our our industry's got a little bit more of a sort of formal thing to it but there are guys that that'll will look at the kind of apprenticeship i i've done which some of it has been like a little bit self-taught others have been really just following around you know these again incredible hunters and going back to you know roger's comment that his brother chewed him out for not carrying his rifle his brother derek was like an early mentor to me getting into the business and that was one of the first things he ever said to me he's like listen when you get off the truck doesn't matter if you're going to take a piss or you're going to go check a water hole real quick see if there's some tracks there grab that rifle put you know put around in it and and that's that's be, the be other thing edge, you is know? always have a loaded rifle there's no point carrying a rifle around if it doesn't have a bullet in the yeah, chamber yeah this this rule <laughs> applies to the, the the client as well by the way but yeah. but stuff like that you know getting the opportunity to sit with those guys another guy danny mccallum who's one of the greats you know getting the opportunity to sit down with danny and just pick his brain about stuff um you know getting the opportunity to be on safari with some of these you know these top hunters was it was a big deal for me, and then you know, ultimately going through my exams and all the rest of it. But I, I think um, exams accreditation. Yeah, yeah. Th- there was a formal <laughs> component to it too. <laughs> Look, Cal, that's against the Bible. <laughs> 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 there, there, no, I mean, and I, and I'm not necessarily anchoring it to that. There's a formal component to it for us, but yeah, I mean, I think. And then there's something well, we, where somebody adorns you with a a break action rifle, a double rifle of some sort. And, but right? they screw you on the sling. Well, not everyone they likes screw the you on the sling. And you got to carry, carry it over your shoulder. Yeah. I was in a camp one time where a guy was eyeballing me. I was guiding. Um, and he said, uh, when are you going to get rid of that bolt trash and get yourself a real rifle? What's meaning, they, uh, meaning a, a double, double rifle. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's I'm, definitely a very split camp in the professional hunting world on on bolt versus double. Really? Yeah. We're double men. Yeah, we're so both we're double men. So we're firmly in that camp. You guys carry the, old, the little I'm doubles. I mean, big yeah. doubles. The big doubles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we do. We both do. Yeah. Rogers. But it's a question of is, is two shots better than potentially three shots is what it comes down to. Like, Ooh. We can get two shots off faster. A bolt action guy can maybe get the third you shot. You can miss twice real good. fast. Yeah. <laughs> one one of my again, one of my mentors it might have been it might have been Derek, also said to me, you know, when you're shooting that double rifle, if something comes, you know, by all means, when you first see it, fire that first barrel, but hold on to that second barrel until you can't miss. Yeah. Till Ooh, till the yeah. end of the so barrel you is hold, basically so on its basically nose. You're, you're touching its, you know, its brain. <laughs> I'm assuming both of you guys have had to shoot charge and stuff. Yep. Yeah, it, it, a few times. Is it, it goes, like an every year thing, every decade? 
mm, it varies. I will say this: a lot is is made of um, the the danger element of of what we do, and it's there. You know, Roger's situation is a classic example. If that had gone differently, you know two little boys are growing up without a dad, you know, the danger's there and we'll, we'll put our lives on our, on the line for our clients like Roger demonstrated. But I consider with, with some exceptions, right? There's always edge cases, but I generally consider a charge to be the result of a screw up from Mm. either the professional hunter or the client. Well, that one guy made a whole video series about getting charged by everything in Africa over and over and over again. Yeah. We, we don't, we don't operate that way. I'll, and I'll just leave it at that. But, (laughs) but I think the, the bottom line for me is a charge is a highly undesirable situation. The buffalo hunt or the lion hunt or the leopard hunt that you will remember and that will, um, make you smile every time you think about it is exactly like the deer hunt, the bear hunt, the elk hunt. And that's the one where you make a great stalk, you get close to your quarry and you make a clean, you know, proper kill, proper shot that results in a clean kill on that animal. And then you're able to enjoy that, that wonderful moment of sitting there with your animal, whether it's a meat animal or a, or a trophy animal, or, you know, obviously both in 99.9% of cases and you, and you can just, you know, you can really enjoy that. That is what you come to Africa for, not to be attacked by things. And the biggest part of <laughs> our, the biggest part of our apprenticeship is really teaching you how to not get yourself. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, a focus. Big time. Big yeah, time. It's, it's about teaching you caution and not just going, you know, guns blazing into a situation. Sure, man. Big yeah. time. I well, mean, I, I tell you, I, uh, you know, I've always kind of wanted to, I've always kind of wanted to go to Africa and we've even looked at it when we were filming a lot of shows, we've even at times kicked it around, but after having you guys for dinner, man, I want to go so bad and hunt Cape Buffalo, man. Let's make it happen. Dude, you got to so see it. Bad. Let's make it happen. It's, yeah. I, want, I just want to see nothing it like all, it. Man. Yeah. yeah. It's I'm just really different. It. It's really different. I would to, love to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think there's a reason why it, you know, Africa sort of held this place in people's imaginations for a long time. And, you know, obviously, you know, there's that danger element and so on and so forth. But again, it goes back to my previous point about all those things that make up safari, like what safari is. That's what sticks with people. You yeah, know? you guys really sold me on the Tanzania deal too because like the wilderness aspect, man. Well, so we've, interesting. In my opinion, Tanzania is, you know, the greatest game field left on earth, you know, and I get that's sort of a controversial thing to say. And, and I, and I don't mean to sort of start a well, comparison. You haven't, you haven't been to my buddy, Matt Cook's place. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah, I heard with about the, that. With the ground, that the squirrel, ground hog yeah, and the fox that, squirrel. The fox squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't, and I don't mean to like start a sort of pissing match, but, um, well, species, how many species on the, um, the, uh, Oh, well, between our, between our different hunting areas, there's a, there's about 33 different species of animal that you, you can leave of game out. animal, mm-hmm. yeah. But out of one, wild. out yeah. of one camp, how? What's the variety? Probably like? twenty, fifteen, yeah. twenty. No yeah. wow. Twenty in any given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm not looking, man. I, I'm very. I want to be very targeted. Being, I'm not looking to be like, oh, that's what one of them is. But there's no Being part of you monomaniacal <laughs> about doesn't want hunting. to be like, well, what's that? Well, what's that? Well, no, I there mean, is, but on. they kind of sold me on. Yeah, they. I don't want to put words in your mouth. These guys really like tracking those Cape Buffalo and they kind of sold me on that as being sort of like the... And when you're on that, there's just less uh, sightseeing opportunity. It consumes, but there are, you'll, you'll bump into stuff that 
you know, it'll be a particularly nice specimen or whatever while you're tracking buffalo or when you're, you know, heading back to camp or whatever, you'll there's bump a, into stuff. And, and There's definitely species. There's a list of species that are yeah. what we call real hunts. So you're not just going to see one right. driving but around like, and have an easy... Ending. You know, I grew up guiding in eastern Montana for antelope, right? Yeah. And people got so distracted by all the other stuff that you could do that it mm. became very challenging to kill an antelope which at the time was not hard to do, yeah. but it was like, well, I want to chase those birds or chase those rabbits or, you know, and all the distraction things. Yeah. So I, I know that in order to be successful at something, you really have to you focus. you got to focus, yeah. But and buffalo hunting's like that. If I were to you go can... all the way to Africa, I would also just want to be able to be like, holy shit, there's that thing that I've only seen in a book. Oh my God, look at that. They, oh, said, you they, said, said, see, they said you will see lions and tr- tracking the, track the buffalo. Quite often, they're also tracking the buffalo. <laughs> you will see lions. You'll see elephants. You'll see warthogs. All this kind of junk, man. Yeah, you'll see yeah. it. You'll you'll just see it around. I mean, they, when you're driving around in the area, you'll see it. And man, some of those animals are good to eat. No. Yeah, oh, but it's man. a real. It also sounds like a, tracking them sounds like a real grind. You put some big miles on it. Tracking them yeah. sounds phenomenal. It's a grind. Yeah. You, like you guys will do some ten mile. You guys do some ten mile easily. sessions. Easily, Easy, yeah, yeah, easily. Most, most days will be seven to ten miles, and it'll end with that buffalo, you know, snorting at you. Can't even see it. Blowing and, up. and you yeah. consistently yeah. have the clientele that is willing to show up and walk seven to ten miles a day. We we yeah you we tell awesome. them. I you, mean, you have to judge. The client yeah. and, and sometimes, you know, I've had a 83 year old on safari and it reaches a stage where you've just got to call it. Just different day. itinerary. Yep. But yeah. you, you always bring the bag of M&Ms, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I do. I always That's have peanut M&Ms <laughs> at the ready. Yeah, I'd be like, I could, I could have bought those at home. <laughs> <laughs> cliff bars, they're another good one. That's <laughs> some source of energy. Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, you know, every buffalo hunt's different, but I think... Roger and I feel the same way as like as probably you guys do. The you're driving down the track and there's one standing off to the side of the road. Even if it's a real big one, it's like no. Oh really? You got to track them. You got to track them. It's got to be proper. It's got to be done right. There's no um. And there is hardly ever an easy buffalo. No, and that's what's so beautiful about them is it's it's always an adventure. And I don't know. I always people always say, how could you liken it to to hunting in North America. And I think from what I hear, I think elk hunting is probably the nearest thing, but then add in a huge danger element of adrenaline and excitement yeah. on top of it being a huge challenge in a beautiful wilderness. And what's the, what's tip, horn tip, the horn tip size on those things? Well, it varies. It can vary from as wide as its head, like the one that hit me, to... 45 inches wow for us though trophy's an old one you know trophy's a gnarly one um the gnarlier the better like i if i if i could only shoot one buffalo in my life and it was like that one that got rog with this with (laughs) i'd be i'd be psyched the limping world i'd be happy to have that on my wall I'd be absolutely thrilled. Little chunk of Roger's uh, collarbone yeah, stuck in his yeah, boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an added bonus. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that it, you know, a trophy is in the the uh, kind of the eye of the beholder. You know, uh, as yeah. long as it's old. I, I mean, I've shot some buffalo that's horns are barely as wide as their ears, but I was stoked. Snapped them off. Stoked. Yeah, or or just he was small. There's, that's you know, how it grew, just yeah. a small buffalo, just like you get a small elk. Like he's just a small buffalo, never yeah. going to get any bigger. 
That's just how he Rigby, was. Um, how he was made. Rigby have started this award they call the the Duggar Boy Award, which, in my opinion, is probably the best hunting award that that I've ever heard of. And the criteria of how they they judge it is not based on the size of the animal. It's it's all about the age and how hard a hunt it was. It's it. like four or five factors, but. It's nothing to do with the the inches. It's just to do with age and how physical or difficult it was to achieve. So, what made it so memorable? Yeah, um, and it's yeah, it's amazing. I, th- I think it's a great idea. So, when you find the one that got you, it should get a high score. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. hoping it's yeah. his only chance. His dad's a judge. <laughs> yeah, my dad's so a he'll judge. He'll need so to recuse himself. To, to, <laughs> so, the only way for him to win is getting that one. Yeah. And I think I think you can do it. You have a pretty solid case with if, that one. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. If I was Africa, um, I would hire you guys to go around like giving a spiel. <laughs> well, to tour America, well, giving as a it spiel. Happens. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean we we'll talk to anyone who'll listen about what we do because we. I would say, aside from the privilege of getting to do what I do and be with those trackers, be with those like-minded people, you know, clients, some phenomenal clients over the years, the. I would say my mission, if I had to like define it, and I know like it's a sort of, it's very American thing to like talk about your mission, but I'm going to, I'm going to get on board with that. And my mission I would say is to change people's perception of what our industry is about, because I think we've, we've labored under, we've sort of had this albatross around our neck of like, like edge cases. Like people like to focus, I think it's like a human nature thing. People like to focus on like edge cases and use them as an example of why a whole system is just irreparably like not going to work. Oh, I, I do that every day. Yeah. I mean, we all do. It's like a, it's like an easy, it's an easy yeah. path to go down. Yeah. But like in, in Spider Bowl, there's a famous <laughs> elk. Spider Bowl. <laughs> and you like go from there to whatever. Yeah. Know. But, but for us, you know, I think our industry, we can honestly say that wildlife in Tanzania is better off for it than without it. And, and that's all it's going to come down to soon with all, you know, all the pressure that's coming from population growth and everything else. It's going to be just come down to that. I want to go. Yeah. And it's a, it's a passion. Like for us, it's, it's really, none of us are in it as a, you don't sign up to be a professional hunter to, to make a lot of money. You, You do it because you care about these wilderness areas. I mean, we've, we've got areas that we've taken care of for 45 years and you know, you, you have a bond with these places that is second to nothing. And a lot of it, you know, you can tell we're both pretty passionate about it, but it's, it's our responsibility to try and educate people on, on some of the realities in Africa, of mm-hmm. what it's like on the ground that you might not realize living somewhere in the United States, for example. Yeah, you guys do a good yeah. job of it. I'm going to start a GoFundMe. It'll be called Steve Goes Hunt in Africa. <laughs> there we go. You know, I'm gl- you know, I wish we were playing trivia because I bet we'd beat you guys bad because you wouldn't know all the American oh, stuff. Oh, North America stuff. You'd thrash us. But <laughs> oh, then man, if we great. could do a trivia show right Ooh. now and a lot of them like, what river in Arkansas? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we'd beat you guys so yeah, bad. Yeah, we'd get, we'd get thrashed. We'd get thrashed. <laughs> I mean, if there was, yeah, a question of like, name these five antelope species, and I, I'd be like, oh boy. Yeah, we might have to <laughs> yeah. turn the tables no, on you guys. So it makes me realize how American our trivia game is. Yeah. It's very American. And we're going to have to broaden that, our That makes horizons. sense. But we're going to, you know what? <laughs> yeah. We're launching our trivia, um, our trivia, we're launching a trivia board game. Oh, nice. And 
see, here's the long, let me give you a little insight into the, into board, the board game world. What you do is you launch a board game. Yeah. And then you, and then every year you have specialized expansion packs. Expansion packs. Yeah. So like, we can't decide if our first expansion, expansion pack would be like the whitetail expansion pack, the waterfowl expansion pack. We'll, we'll consult with you guys down the road and we'll do the safari expansion pack yeah. or the whatever that word is you had. Yeah. Kuinda. Yeah. The Kuinda <laughs> expansion pack. And then people that have like a little, have some curiosity about African big game could buy that expansion pack and it'd be like, mm. they could mix it in and it'd have all these questions yeah. like what you're talking about. Yeah. And then we'll come back on and do trivia and it'll be a little, Beat our asses. Uh, it'll mm-hmm. be a little more even if we, draw, yeah. if we draw from that deck. <laughs> yeah. Another expansion pack we talked about was like, um, mountain men and frontiersmen expansion pack, but oh. I don't know if you come up with enough questions. We can throw in some cool stuff about like some of those early Africa guys, like this guy, FC Salu, for example, just to, just a wild man. Just to have it be that no Americans get it right. Yeah, but some American. <laughs> I mean, again, if they've read if they've read about the Roosevelt Safari, they'll know who FC Salou is. Really? Yeah, they'll know that guy's name, and they should. Everyone should. I got one last question. Uh, pith helmets. <laughs> Mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> not a thing anymore? Definitely not. <laughs> we, I have had one client... Get off a KLM plane with his socks pulled up, his hunting jacket, and a pith helmet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. he was a writer, to be fair. So That's he was awesome. trying to recreate the, the oh, Roosevelt feel. He wanted to feel it from the beginning to the he's end. He's like a method. He's like instead of a, <laughs> method, a method actor, he's a method writer. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I dig it. I honestly, I dig it. I've got a lot of admiration yeah. for that guy. That that takes balls. We <laughs> should That's relaunch awesome. instead of like a regular. Uh, Trucker cap, we should have a meat eater branded. Meat eater pith helmet. <laughs> Some of the Zimbabwean pre- professional hunters laugh at me for wearing boots. So I think a pith helmet's going to be like a, a non starter. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll look it up later. I'm, still, I'm not quite clear what, why they wore them. Was it sun protection? It was supposed sun, to be yeah, shade and breeze. Sun, and, oh, sun yeah. protection. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to stop a bullet. No. No. All right. Robin Hurt Safaris. <laughs> That's the place. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Don't call down there though until I get my situation squared away. <laughs> Have a thing on the web. Just start, shut the website down. Yeah, just for a few days. Until I get my situation squared <laughs> we'll, away. We'll hold something for you. We'll hold something for you. <laughs> Dude, I want to go so bad, man. All right. What are you thinking, Phil? You in? Is this my official invite? <laughs> Well, let's see if you can get that editing pulled together. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always see if you can turn it around on the edits. All depends on how the next couple weeks go, it sounds. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Thanks so much for coming on, man. This is great. Thanks, well, for, thanks for having us. Yeah.
For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in the sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com.